With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Criminal Conspiracy Unit of LAPD, their mission in life was to investigate extremist groups, primarily the Black Panthers. And the FBI had a special unit uh, called the S2 unit. They euphemistically called it their racial squad. Their focus was on the Black Panther Party. So the FBI's um, racial squad and the LAPD's uh, criminal conspiracy section worked literally hand in hand in bringing down the, the, the LA Black Panther Party and its leadership, Pratt in particular. When uh, Bunchy Carter and John Huggins had been assassinated, Pratt became the leader of the Panthers, and now the FBI had to get rid of Pratt. Geronimo Pratt was a Vietnam veteran. He'd been a paratrooper and won many medals in Vietnam, including a Purple Heart. He trained all the Panthers in Los Angeles on how to defend the office against attack. He was the defense minister, uh, so he was clearly somebody that the FBI was out to neutralize. December 8, 1969, Los Angeles. Special Weapons and Tactics, Criminal Conspiracy Section, LAPD, FBI. Black Panthers, as we all know, were destroyed as an organization through these illegal FBI operations. And uh, certainly the CIA violated the privacy and the rights of thousands upon thousands of Americans through the illegal operations which they agreed to do under Richard Helms as director. Any and everything was done to members of the Black Panther Party to destroy not only the Black Panther Party and other organizations, but to demoralize people to discredit us in the eyes of the people, to criminalize our existence in the consciousness and minds of the people. It's physical violence and torture, per se. There's nothing modern about it, and there is nothing sophisticated or scientific about it. It is the base against which psychological warfare has its meaning. We went to interview Mumia Abu-Jamal, the Peabody Award-winning journalist. We found him awaiting execution on death row. In essence, when one looks at the aims and objectives of the federal government through the FBI, by way of the 
Intel program, what one really sees is a war against black America, a war against um, any, uh, in the words of the files, in fact, the emergence of a black messiah who could lead black America. In 1970, there were tremendous trials. The United States government began to try to sweep up all of the leftovers of the 60s into these major conspiracies. And they had the Black Panther trial, the Chicago 7 trial, the LA 17 trial, the Wilmington 10 trial, RNA 11 trial. There was just tons and tons of these types of trials. Many of our people went to the wayside psychologically, emotionally, and physically. 15-hour shootouts, Philadelphia, New Orleans, Los Angeles, San Diego, the frame-up of hundreds of Panthers across the country on ridiculous trumped-up charges. I was arrested. I was 19 years old. We were the first Waco. The New African, New Bethel incident, when the police came in, uh, the Detroit police came in there to try to shoot up everybody in that church, men, women, and children were having a peaceful demonstration to try to kill them. They were shooting under the pills. They were shooting at little children running and crying. There's nothing to me has been more painful out of all the people I know that died in Vietnam than those comrades who died out here in the streets. There is nothing Nothing. legitimate to go out and kill as many Vietnamese as one could, uh, or Viet Cong as one could, then uh, why not kill enemies in the United States? Today, a judge set Newton free on $50,000 bond to await a new trial. Newton's last trial and manslaughter conviction were overturned by a higher court this year, so now he'll be tried again. And in the meantime, he is out on bail. He is back on the street. Before Newton got out of prison, the founder of the Black Panther Party sat and talked about his plans for the Panthers now. Uh, I plan to uh, go on with our, our expansion and also to, uh, to make even a stronger tie with the uh, struggling people of the world because they represent two-thirds of the people. J. Edgar Hoover today characterized the Black Panthers as the most dangerous and violence-prone of all the extremist groups now active in the United States. They were forces at foot trying to undermine the relationship 
between not only myself and the leadership of the Black Panther Party, national leadership, but between the various forces within the Black Panther Party who wanted to make the Black Panther Party more responsive and democratic and those who wanted to maintain the Black Panther Party as an extension of, of, of autocratic control of, of Central Committee. The Central Committee of the Black Panther Party, when I come out of jail, I reorganize it again. Huey Nam was actually opposed to this. I said, no, we have to have a broader Central Committee. Because when I come out of jail, Huey was sitting there with him and David, he went to jail, and Elaine Brown and a couple of other people and said, this is our Central Committee. And I said, Huey, this whole uh, Supreme Commander crap has got to go. And these are the private conversations I had with Huey, you know. So my point becomes, he was trying to absolutize himself. We had, we had felt that um, all the contradiction that was happening between David Heed and all the other people in the party, and the central leadership and the breakdown in centralism and all that, would be resolved when Huey came home. When Huey came out, uh, Geronimo remained a member of the Central Committee. For whatever reason, uh, Huey, uh, after he got out of jail, uh, he wanted to have the total control of the party, but the way the party was set up with the Central Committee, uh, that was uh, impossible. Uh, Geronimo, being one of the strongest uh, personalities on the Central Committee, uh, just had to be eliminated. It was around this time that Elmer Geronimo Pratt uh, was, um, was captured and branded as an as a, um, agent by David Hilliard and the Central Committee of the Black Panther Party on the West Coast. Of course, this was a total fabrication. Geronimo was not an agent. In fact, the, um, the individual who pointed the finger at Geronimo and declared him an agent, Melvin Cotton Smith, was himself a police informer, an agent, who was assigned to Geronimo by David Hilliard. A split apparently is opened in the leadership of the Black Panther Party. On a San Francisco television talk show, Huey Newton, in the studio, talked with fugitive Aldridge Cleaver, speaking by telephone from Algeria. Cleaver said a purge of Black Panther members is tearing the party apart, blamed it on David Hilliard, and demanded the ouster of Hilliard as Panther Chief of Staff. Many of those confrontations, both on the West Coast and between the East Coast and the West Coast, happened because of the COINTELPRO program, what they called Program Brown Mail. They would write to one person and sign their letter. They would write to another person and sign each other's person's signature. And it really cracked the Black Panther Party in two by creating two factions. All of this was happening at the same time that Huey Newton was planning his itinerary to come back east, and the government used the hysteria and the paranoia around these issues to give Huey the impression that the New York Panthers were unloyal to him. They wrote to people, in my name, signed my signature, and these were crazy letters that were written by the FBI, and Jeff Ford got a letter from Chairman Fred. Of course, they thought those letters were from each other, and the, the tone of the letters were um, incendiary, or you're a punk, uh, if I see you, I'm going to, you know, shoot you, uh, you're a coward, if you had guts, you would come down here. I mean, it was, a, it was literally an attempt by this government to incite violence. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's day, Thursday, March 18. 
2021 so I have been told this is our third study session on Jack Olson suspected racist uh, his book the last or excuse me not the last man standing the tragedy and triumph of Geronimo Pratt third session uh, looking forward to delving right into the book uh, the section the audio clip that we started with uh, that is from one of my favorite documentaries of all time uh, all power to the people it is available on YouTube and probably a lot of other uh, sites online where you could watch it for free uh, it's about two hours it has a lot of information uh, about the Cointel Pro program uh, it has interviews with Geronimo Pratt when he was incarcerated you heard from Mumia Abu-Jamal uh, Bobby Seale, uh, lots of uh, people who were members of the Black Panther Party. Uh, Kathleen Cleaver uh, has also interviewed just a wealth of information also about the uh, assassination of Minister Malcolm X, Dr. King, uh, lots of what was happening during that time period and very relevant. Everything that you just heard in that segment, very relevant to what will be discussed uh, this week. Uh, we will go ahead and get started. Context of white supremacy. Jack Olson, Last Man Standing, The Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Pratt, Context of White Supremacy. Chapter 9, On the Road Again At last, Geronimo was freed on bond and Huey P. Newton ordered him to go underground to help build Panther defenses and open up what Newton called a revolutionary infrastructure around the country. The BPP co-founder was facing up manslaughter charges himself and becoming increasingly irrational. Some blamed the drugs that eventually destroyed him. Some blamed the constant pressure by authorities and his widening split with the Eldridge Cleaver wing. Like his own hero, Bunchy Carter, Pratt leaned toward the Cleaver faction, but he accepted Newton's order without complaint and took to the road. In Philadelphia, New Orleans, and Seattle, he taught Panthers how to protect themselves from police raids like the ones in Chicago and Los Angeles. A Panther who later became a journalist credited Geronimo in print with saving dozens of lives. If he hadn't come to Philly and made us stop jiggling and acting complacent, he said, this ain't no joke, and made us dig tunnels and put up sandbags, Frank Rizzo, police chief and later mayor, would have exterminated us. A lot of good men are alive today because of Geronimo. After Philadelphia, Pratt traveled to New York, New Haven and Newark, then swung south to Winston-Salem, Atlanta, Birmingham, and other cities in the so-called Black Belt. He was distantly aware that he was missing court dates in Los Angeles, but he intended to put off facing the charges against him as long as possible. He regarded every count as fraudulent. Some had already been dismissed by judges who saw through the LAPD program of harassment. He didn't feel like an outlaw or a criminal. He felt like a worker doing a job. 
when a friend informed him that the Los Angeles Times was reporting that he jumped bail, he said, well, that's their way of looking at it. Establishment justice could wait. In the hottest part of the summer of 1970, he reached New Orleans, where blacks and rats shared living quarters in housing projects that had been built to improve their lives. His brother Timothy wrote later, Gerard seemed obsessed about the way our people had to live in New Orleans. I think it had something to do with all those trips we made with daddy as young men and boys. Everybody knew the Desire Housing Project was the worst. From their windows, the residents could see and smell the muddy Mississippi. It was as poor as the most third world countries. There were more people per square mile than in any other place in the United States. All of the pathologies that accompany poverty and despair, serious crime, teenage pregnancy, unemployment, functional illiteracy, dropout rates, truancies, etc., were extremely high. The people of the Desire Projects were truly desperate. On a steamy Monday afternoon in the ghetto, Geronimo got word that his father was dead. Stressed and upset, he reached Morgan City in time to disrupt a scene in the church where he'd served as an altar boy. The rosary was finished, his brother Jackie recalled. The priest had left, and we were sitting around reminiscing. Charles, Tim, Imelda, Jenny, Jacqueline, me and mama all of a sudden gerard bursts through the doors he glanced at the coffin and saw the rosary beads in daddy's hands where mama had put them daddy always took a dim view of religious ritual so gerard said you dumbasses you got my daddy on display you're not worthy of sitting here with my daddy then he was out the door when we got home from the wake, Gerard was sitting in Daddy's favorite old rocking chair. Jacqueline started yelling, Gerard, you listen to me. We don't need that panther stuff at a time like this. We don't need some fool cursing and defiling our church. Mama turned to Jacqueline and said, Sit down, child. Leave your brother alone. Mama took a seat on the couch and said in her soft voice, Do y'all know why Gerard is a Black Panther? Do you have the slightest idea? It's directly because of your daddy. Gerard, he kept on rocking. Mama said, It's because of what your daddy taught him, the way your daddy lived, the example he said, not a one of you would be what you are today if it wasn't for your daddy. Gerard, look at me, son. That's true of you most of all. You're more like your daddy than anybody. For the first time, Geronimo looked up. His eyes glistened, but he didn't speak. With his brothers and sisters, he listened as Eunice Petty Pratt 
related the full story of their father's life for the first time from his fatherless childhood through his days in Storyville to his days as a paddle-boat cook and drayman. She talked for three hours, Jackie said, told us things we never knew. We sat there like little kids. Gerard, no different. When she was finished, we were a family again. Geronimo felt guilty about not visiting his father in the old man's final year. Maybe I should have spent more time at home, he admonished himself. Maybe I should have been the one who wheeled Daddy up and down the alley, talked to him, read to him. What'll Mama do now that she's all alone? He immersed himself in his work, returning to New Orleans to help start a new BPP unit, then headed to Mobile, Memphis, and Shreveport to talk to black groups about self-defense. He'd lost track of his pending hearings, but the Los Angeles Police Department hadn't. Pratt was contacted by his fellow Panther Melvin Cotton Smith and advised that Huey Newton had ordered both of them to a meeting in Marshall, Texas, 150 miles east of Dallas. The theme would be unity. No more bickering, said Smith, who seemed to be recasting himself in the role of Pratt's friend and sidekick. No more Cleaver faction, no more Newton faction, no more East Coast and West Coast, we all just panthers, going in a new direction, us against the pigs. When Newton failed to appear at the Texas rendezvous, Geronimo was puzzled. Everything at that point became very weird to me, he testified later. It was time to return to Los Angeles, get back to work in the ghettos, reunite with his girlfriend Sandra and his panther brothers. But Cotton Smith urged him to stay put. Huey'll show up, Smith told him. There's just some little mistake. You know Huey. Yes, Geronimo thought. I know Huey. Huey's been a hero and an inspiration, but right now he's out on bond on a manslaughter rap and spending panther funds on cocaine, one of the BPP's strongest taboos and grounds for immediate expulsion. Every member knew what was going on, but none knew what to do about it. Pratt tried to contact the Supreme Commander in Oakland, but couldn't seem to connect. Huey's out of town, a female voice reported. We don't know exactly where. Three more days passed before Cotton Smith said he'd finally reached Newton and had been ordered to deliver Geronimo to a BPP safe house in Dallas. As soon as they arrived, Dallas police arrested them on federal UFTAP, Unlawful Flight to Avoid Prosecution, warrants. In the jail at 500 Commerce Street, Pratt exchanged his brown polyester leisure suit, open-collared shirt, charcoal-colored boots, and dark brown leather cap for a bright orange jumpsuit that reeked of disinfectant. 
he was placed in solitary confinement, the hole. He wondered what happened to his friend Cotton. The police had rushed him off to another part of the jail. On his second day of confinement, Pratt was visited by an FBI agent who acted as though he were the bearer of good tidings. Read this, he said, and handed over a copy of a document on Panther stationery. On page one, Geronimo saw pictures of himself as a civilian in dark glasses and as a soldier wearing a steel helmet, combat infantryman's badge and paratrooper wings over a U.S. Army patch. The top line read, On the purge of Geronimo from the Black Panther Party. Pratt blinked as he read a statement from Huey Newton charging him with 44 flagrant violations of our party's principles. Newton had written, His devotion and allegiance was still to the ways and rules of the pig power structure. He is dedicated today to that pig agency as he was when he was in Vietnam killing innocent Vietnamese women and children on various search and destroy missions. The astonished Geronimo found himself described as a jackanapes, pig, raper of black sisters, renegade, and snake who committed the cultural offense of purchasing Christmas presents. Christmas being the high holiday of the pig capitalists, threatened to assassinate the Panther Supreme Commander and other party leaders, used official funds to purchase alcohol and narcotics for the purpose of indulging himself and his stupid cohorts in nightly bourgeois orgiastic revelries, revealed innermost secrets, attempted to organize a counter-revolutionary little rebel roving band and violated the masses of people themselves. The polemic concluded, let it be known then that Geronimo, Elmer Gerard Pratt, his wife Sandy Lane Pratt, or Sandra Holmes, or Red, who worked in concert with him, are forever purged and expelled from the Black Panther Party. Any party member who attempts to aid them or communicate with them in any form or manner shall be considered a part of their conspiracy to undermine and destroy the Black Panther Party, all power to the people. Geronimo's first reaction was that Newton had finally lost his mind to drugs and had written the pronouncement in a mental ward. But after sober thought, he came up with a more realistic scenario. He was the latest victim in the old East-West-Newton-Cleaver feud, a fight that had escalated to the point where Cleaver supporters tried to assassinate Newton by blowing out a brick wall at the San Francisco Panther office. In such a charged atmosphere, no one could please both sides. Like Bunchy Carter and John Huggins 
and Long John Washington before him, Pratt had backed Eldridge while trying not to alienate Huey. In the past, this confused allegiance might have been a minor annoyance to the Newton forces, but apparently it was now a capital offense. Days passed as Geronimo spent his jail time writing inspirational letters to fellow Panthers and friends. He still mourned the loss of Carter and Huggins, and he wrote a friend in a newly florid style. The example set by John and Bunchy serves as an aluminous flame in a dark path that has many twists and turns. Without it, we surely would be like blind men groping in the dark. We will halt the rotation and orbitation of this planet, seize the time, and have our say on anything or anyone that gets in the way of our freedom. If I were not to reach our goal, then color me a radiant, red, dead, with a bullet in my head. He was in no hurry to return to the city where he'd spent so much time posting Bond and looking over his shoulder. No one came to visit him in Dallas, and his requests for information were ignored. He tried to reach out to Sandra in Los Angeles, but his entreaties were unanswered. He remained bewildered about his expulsion from the BPP. But what happened to my friends? He asked himself. What happened to my Panthers? We were tighter than I'd ever been with my platoon in Vietnam. And now I'm a pig and a traitor. He wrote an anguished note to another colleague. No one in Oakland has ever tried to contact me about the matter. We're still trying to figure out the root cause. David Hilliard was, I thought, closer to me than any of my blood brothers, and he's the main one who upset me so. I sent him reports and tried to call. Also, I had my lawyer to deliver some messages. All this to no avail. A jailer informed him he was being held incommunicado at the request of the LAPD's Criminal Conspiracy Section, successor to the department's notorious Red Squad. He learned later that the CCS had been searching for him for months. They were told I was with Eldridge in Algiers, in Moscow, Paris, Nairobi, or I was in South America with Che Guevara. That was the first time I began to realize that the cops thought I was a whole lot bigger than I really was. They built me into a world-class revolutionary. Someone alerted Pratt's Dallas jailers that the rabble-rousing inmate needed special attention. They beat me so bad they had to take me to Parkland Hospital, the same place where President Kennedy was pronounced dead. Then they threw me in the tank with about eight guys, including a black dude named Trainwreck. He was maybe 6'4", 260, had a big dent down his forehead. First thing I saw was Trainwreck trying to rape a little brother with a greased-up broom handle. 
it was as bad as anything in Nam. The boy kept screaming and Trainwreck kept trying to shove this broom handle up his butt, kissing him on the ears, slobbering, holding and choking him at the same time. I said, hey man, leave that kid alone. We fought for an hour, just me and Trainwreck, and I wore his ass out. After that, I began to get some respect from the prisoners. Word went out, lay off Pratt. A couple of panthers were thrown in the tank and told me things were bad on the outside. Since you left, we sliding downhill. Parties breaking apart. Cops sent in so many snitches you're afraid to talk to anybody. After two months in the Dallas jail, Geronimo was returned to California by the point man on his case, Sergeant Raymond Callahan, for the LAPD. In Los Angeles, Pratt immediately came under investigation for a laundry list of unsolved crimes, the theft of guns from the Camp Pendleton Marine Base, an unsolved robbery in Alabama, the infamous Tate LaBianca murders in Hollywood, and other open cases. At first, he was held in solitary confinement in the Glass House in Parker Center. The unsprung metal rack was hard on his back. He slept for five or ten minutes at a time, but only when exhausted. He dreamed about torched villages, roasted flesh, and eyes pecked out by crows. Snakes, rats, leeches, spiders, ants, and lice. A jail psychiatrist diagnosed his sleep problem as excessive anxiety and nervousness, complicated by the harassment and intimidation by jailers and put him on the tranquilizer Librium. Needle fragments still pierced his intestines, causing alternating bouts of constipation and diarrhea. For all his desensitizing army experience and bivoke training, he still felt embarrassed when guards walked past his cell as he strained over the hole in the floor. Some stopped and peered in. I'm not putting on a damn show. Pratt snapped at a crew-cut young deputy. The guard observed that he had a cute little ass. A few days after the return, from Dallas, Geronimo appeared in Los Angeles Superior Court in clogs and chains to hear himself arraigned for first-degree murder and conspiracy to murder police officers in the raids on December 8, 1969. He wasn't surprised about the charges. During the police campaign against the Panthers, he and his colleagues had often been arrested on suspicion of murder. When the legal holding period expired, the charges were dropped. But this time, the charges hadn't been brought by the cops. They'd been brought by the Los Angeles County District Attorney. What the hell is this 187 PC crap? He asked his lawyer, Luke McKissack, after the hearing. Who'd I murder now? The attorney rifled through the court papers 
and asked if he remembered the tennis court shootings in Santa Monica on December 18, 1968. I was in Oakland then. Can you prove it? Easy. The police report says your car was seen in the neighborhood. My little GTO? I left it with a couple Panthers, Franco Diggs and Bunchy. Can you prove that? Yup. The lawyer said there didn't seem to be anything to worry about. Four cruiserweight deputies transferred Pratt to the new Los Angeles County Jail after the arraignment. Who am I? He asked himself. Super black? Why do I need a thousand pounds of guard? Inside his cell, he held out his wrists so the handcuffs could be unlocked. A blow across the back of his neck sent him sprawling. One of the deputies said, Boy, you killed a white woman. When Geronimo tried to stand, he was slammed against the wall. He landed a two-handed chop before he went down in a flurry of punches and kicks. He awoke naked and alone. A guard told him he'd been sentenced to BAAC, bare ass and concrete indefinitely. He would be fed bread and water twice a day. While he was recovering from his injuries, Pratt heard from McKissack. This 187 PC, the lawyer said, the DA is serious, Geronimo. You were secretly indicted in December. Several witnesses testified. One of them said you confessed to the tennis court murder three or four times. I confessed, he said. To who? Julio Butler. Chapter 9 Flashback Murder Most Foul At 8 p.m. on December 18, 1968, two years before Geronimo Pratt was arrested in Dallas, Barbara Mary Reed had watched nervously as two light-skinned black men entered her store. A short elderly shopkeeper, she owned and operated the Lincoln Hobby Center on the busy corner of Lincoln Boulevard and Broadway in Santa Monica. She was alone and about to close. The taller of the two men moved to the back and studied the rare coin cases. The other went to the storeroom and peered inside. She felt relieved when they drifted toward the front. May I help you? she asked. The shorter man said he needed materials to build a dollhouse for his wife. Oh, I don't carry that, she said. He said, is there any reason why you won't sell it to me? I can't sell it to you, she answered. I don't stock items like that. She walked behind them as they left, locked the door, and reversed the sign in the window from yes, we're open, to sorry we're closed. As she watched the pair walked north, then stopped. One of the men returned, jiggled her door and yelled, 
Let me in. A pearl-handled pistol glittered in his right hand. She stepped backward and dialed police. When her husband arrived a few minutes later to drive her home, the intruders were gone. He told her that he'd seen two black men walk to the Radio Shack parking lot a block north and disappear. It was a clear night, the temperature in the 40s, sub-arctic weather for Santa Monicans and Kenneth Crimson Olson, 31-year-old head of the English department at Belmont High School, looked forward to a few sets of tennis with his ex-wife Carolyn. The Olsons were divorced but discussing reconciliation. He parked on Wilshire Boulevard at the Lincoln Park Tennis Court, four blocks from the Lincoln Hobby Center, and accompanied Carolyn to the center court. Both were dressed in tennis whites, v-neck pullovers, and white tennis shoes. Kenneth set his gear on a beach, and Carolyn, a 27-year-old second-grade school teacher, laid her purse alongside and fished for a quarter to activate the coin-operated light switch. Olson saw that she seemed to be having trouble with the meter. As he walked over to help, he spotted two figures entering the enclosure. He wasn't concerned and barely registered their arrival. He dropped the coin into the slot for 30 minutes of playing time and watched the shadows turn into incandescent green, white, and black. As he walked back toward the bench with Carolyn, the men approached. He saw that they were armed. All right, one of them snapped, hands up. The robbers mumbled between themselves, and the same man said, Yeah, hands up. Now, we want your bread. Carolyn pointed to her white gnawhide purse on the bench. Kenneth removed the black leather wallet and car keys from his racket bag and handed them over. Eighteen bucks, the talkative robber said. That ain't enough. Olson said he had more money in his car. Turn off the lights. Olson said the switch was on a timer and couldn't be turned off. You'll have to shoot them out if you want them out. Get down, the robber said. Lay down and pray. With their noses to the tarmac, the couple heard a few receding footsteps, then silence. Olson looked up and saw that the two men were standing six or eight feet away as he watched. They turned and raised their guns. A volley of shots rang out and slugs tore into his body. Carolyn moaned as the gunman ran out the exit to the street. Ken asked, Are you okay? Can you move? He tried to help her up, but she seemed paralyzed, bleeding from a head wound. He realized that he had to get help before he fainted. He staggered across the street to the broken drum restaurant. We've been shot, he gasped to a waitress. My wife is on the tennis court and she can't move or speak. Please help us. Then he collapsed. Back at the hobby shop, Santa Monica patrolman Richard Plass was taking a report from Barbara Reed when an emergency signal 
crackled over his police radio. Shots fired at the broken drum. Victim down. Plass radioed a Code 3 ambulance request and sped to the nearby restaurant. He found a man spattered with blood from his face to his bare muscular legs. His head was swathed in a blood-flecked towel. The man pointed in the direction of the tennis courts and said, My wife's been shot. The patrolman ran across the street and saw a woman lying face down, her hands doubled over her midsection. Why? She was moaning. Why? Why? We gave them the money. Barely conscious, the woman described the gunman as black, about 25 years old, 5'8 to 5'9, weighing about 140 pounds. Doctors at Santa Monica Emergency Hospital found two bullet wounds in Carolyn Olson's lower chest and an exit wound in her back. A slug remained in her body. She was listed in critical condition. Kenneth Olson had suffered a broken thumb, a wound to his right forearm, and crease wounds on his stomach and forehead. He was listed as satisfactory. Patrolman Plass and a homicide detective team converged on the tennis court and found three 45 caliber casings and three spent slugs. Players at the Santa Monica Chess Club, less than 100 feet from the scene, told the officers that they'd heard what they thought were firecrackers or backfires. Another witness said he'd heard gunshots and followed a man wearing a light-colored coat as he ran from the tennis court area into the shadows. He described the runner as Caucasian. Two other men told the investigators that they'd been getting into their van when they saw two black men entering the Lincoln Park area. A few minutes later, they heard five to seven shots and saw the men run from the park and get into a car, possibly a 1964 to 1968 dark red, possibly blood red vehicle with a white convertible top, very clean and shiny, and a white license plate. The car had left tire marks as it accelerated north on 7th Street. At the hospital, Kenneth Olson told detectives that he'd seen the robbers at a distance of two or three feet. On the basis of his information, police listed suspect number one as a clean-shaven Negro, about 25 years old, 5'8 to 5'9, 140 pounds, with black hair and unknown eye color, possibly dark, and wearing a brown leather waist-length coat, possibly suede. Suspect number two was described as a Negro, 22 or 23, 5'10", 140, dark eyes, wearing a leather waist-length coat and light pants. Barbara Reed provided sharper detail. The shopkeeper said that the taller man had been a six-footer, 23, to 29 years old, thin build, 155, medium complexion, very clean looking, narrow shoulders and hips, wearing dark pants and shoes, light tan or beige jacket with loops hanging down on each side, 
wore a dark shirt or sweater underneath. The shorter man, she told the police, was 23 to 29, 5'8 or 5'9, 145 to 150 pounds, medium light complexion, clean looking, very trim haircut, black shoes, black or dark pants, Eisenhower type jacket, light beige, rust or brown colored shirt, or sweater underneath the jacket. She helped a police technician to assemble identikit composites of the two shooters, and bulletins were prepared showing facial close-ups of two clean-shaven black men with short hair and no scars. Later, Mrs. Reed explained that she was disappointed in the identikit results on number two, the shorter man, because the technician didn't have a template small enough to match his thin mouth and nose. Carolyn Olson remained in a coma through Christmas and appeared to be recovering, but 11 days after the shooting, she died of superative peritonitis with hemorrhage due to gunshot wound penetration, multiple viscera, as the coroner reported. With the case upgraded to homicide, Santa Monica detectives faced the typical problems of an investigation involving cross-racial descriptions and identifications. They had little doubt that the killers were African American, but motorist Ralph Bryan's description of them as Caucasian suggested the possibility that the other witnesses were wrong or that a third man, a white, had been involved. The detectives realized they were dealing with impulse killers, amateurs, the maddest of mad dogs. There was no earthly reason to fire at victims who'd already been robbed and were prone on their stomachs. Every element of the crime, from the confrontation in the hobby shop to the shootings on the tennis court, spelled unreason and irrationality, probably caused by narcotics, liquor, or both. For almost a year after the Christmas season of 1968, Santa Monica detectives kept Kenneth Olson and Barbara Reed busy studying mug books and posters. Photos and information on similar crimes arrived from Modesto and Van Nuys and other California cities, leaving police to wonder if the tennis court killers might still be active. Reed never wavered from her insistence that she would be able to make a positive identification if the right photo turned up. But Olson was a problem. In the trauma of losing the woman he loved, he seemed over-eager for revenge. A Los Angeles deputy, D.A., Ronald Carroll later described the school administrator as a little flaky and said that the Santa Monica police had little confidence in his ability to make a positive ID. Despite their misgivings, detectives enlisted Olson's aid after they received information on December 12, 1969, that the Van Nuys Division of the LAPD was investigating a similar case. The police said that five days after a robbery, a suspect named Ernest James Perkins had returned to fire a shot at his victim. Now Perkins was in custody, charged with attempted murder 
and a warrant was out for his suspected accomplice in the robbery, Stanley Vance. Santa Monica detectives sent for headshot photos and rap sheets on the suspects. A few days after the first anniversary of the tennis court shootings, Olson was summoned to headquarters for the 18th time. His face lit up as he studied an array of mugshots and identified Perkins and Vance as the men who had murdered his wife. He said he would like to see them in a live lineup. Police still hadn't tracked down Stanley Vance, but at 10 a.m., the day before Christmas, they paraded the 20-year-old Ernest James Perkins and five other young black men past Olson as he sat behind a one-way mirror. This time, the school administrator made a positive identification. Detectives redoubled their efforts to find Perkins' crime partner so they could wrap up the case. But a routine check established that on the night of the shootings, Perkins had been locked in a prison facility at Tracy, nearly 400 miles north of Santa Monica. The police were reluctant to give up on a suspect who'd been selected with such certainty, and they drove to Tracy to examine bed check records to see if Perkins might have been AWOL on the murder night. He and every other inmate had been marked present at a bed check. Kenneth Crimson Olson had been confident, positive, and wrong. Chapter 11 Accused As the second anniversary of the tennis court murder approached, Santa Monica police all but gave up on the case. Hundreds of man-hours had been wasted on false leads. Repeated show-ups had produced nothing but misidentifications and confusion. Then the LAPD's Panther Unit produced explosive new information. A Black Panther squad leader named Julius Julio Butler had named the Southern California leader, Geronimo Pratt, as one of the killers. A few days after Pratt expelled him from the party on August 5, 1969, Butler had ridden out his charges and turned them over to a police friend in a sealed envelope on which he'd scrawled, To be opened in the event of my death. Then he passed word to the FBI and the Panther hierarchy that he'd written an insurance policy. His letter, he claimed privately, could put Panthers in the gas chamber and would be made public if he were ever harmed. Semi-literate passages appeared to border on hysteria. At the time of this writing, I've been working and living under the threat of assassination by local and national leaders of the Black Panther, namely Bobby Seale, chairman of the Black Panther Party, Elmer G. Geronimo Pratt, Deputy Minister of Defense, Southern California area, John Long John Washington, Southern California Field Secretary, rank of major, Roger Blue Lewis, bodyguard and assassin, rank of captain. Omar in charge of Goon Squad locally. Butler's letter spoke of the party changing its direction and of how he'd been 
relieved of all duties and official working capacities. He described an evening when a heat discussion grew out of the fact I still refuse to adhere to this new gang-like direction and was ordered shut up, at which time Long John drew a Ruger's Blackhawk 357 Magnum and cocked it to full cock and pointed it at my head. Then Geronimo shouted several times, Shoot him! If you don't shoot him, I'll shoot you! In his letter, the hairstylist addressed the widespread rumors that he was a police agent and informer. I heard Long John state Julio is a pig. He is receiving $12,000 per month from the CIA and the Los Angeles Police Department. That they had evidence proving my badge number and rank in the CIA. He also stated I was the one who killed Captain Franco and I was the man responsible for the deaths of Bunchy Carter and John Huggins at UCLA and that the order was out to kill me to save the people's liberation struggle. I've continually received calls by persons unknown such as you're a dead man you know too much and must die. Butler cited the following reason I feel the death threat may be carried out through listening to Bergado conversation with these men myself and other persons have reasonable cause to believe these persons were responsible for acts of murder they carelessly bragged about number one Geronimo for the killing of a white school teacher and the wounding of her husband on a tennis court in the city of Santa Monica sometime during the year of 1968. Number two, Geronimo and Blue being responsible for the killing of Captain Franco, Black Panther Party, in January 1969 and constantly stating as a threat to me that I was just like Franco and gave them no alternative but to wash me away. The letter ended, I cannot afford to testify to this in court because this letter represents the only real protection I have for my family. All the above statements are true and done by my own hand and of my own free will. The insurance letter from Pratt's deadliest enemy remained unopened for months until it came to light in the course of a police internal affairs investigation. In normal times, the note might have been considered the work of a vengeful crank and ignored. But the times were far from normal. For two years, the LAPD had been fighting the Panthers, stopping BPP cars, bringing false charges, cannonading party buildings, arresting Panthers for cursing in public, and jaywalking. Los Angeles detectives immediately wrested the murder case from the Santa Monica police. They knew Ramrod would be Sergeant Raymond Callahan of the criminal conspiracy section working closely with the FBI. On a tip from an anonymous informer, Callahan sent an arrest team into South Central area to pick up 19-year-old Panther 
named Tyrone Hutchinson, whose main connection with the case seemed to be the fact that he was six feet tall and built like a toothpick. Hutchinson was held for felony possession of marijuana and investigation of murder. In a high-intensity session at police headquarters, Sergeant Callahan told the frightened Panther that he'd been positively identified as Geronimo Pratt's accomplice in the tennis court murder. Hutchinson responded with a positive ID of his own. He said he knew the real killers. They were his neighborhood homeboys, Herbert Swilly and Larry Doobie Hatter, who were friendly with Julio Butler. Lately, the young addicts had turned to increasingly flagrant crimes to support their heroin habits. In one narcotic rampage, Swilly had attacked his mother, broken his girlfriend's nose, and tried to drown his sister in the bathtub. Hutchinson told Callahan that the two muggers had talked about the tennis court murder and seemed pleased that their victims had cowered in fear before they were shot. The killers had mentioned the time, date, and location, but refused to discuss crucial questions such as who fired the fatal shots. The Panther unit leader asked if anyone else had been present during the confessions and Hutchinson named three other men who'd been in the Black Panther office at 84th and Broadway when Swilly and Hatter, high on narcotics, swaggered in to boast of their murderous score. Four days after his arrest, Hutchinson was freed. In his official report, Callahan described the Panther as uncooperative. Police made no effort to interview the other witnesses to the Swilly Hatter confessions. As private investigator James McCloskey reported years later, Callahan did not pursue the Swilly and Hatter leads because he already had his case built against the notorious BPP leader Pratt and was now looking for the second taller suspect. New and different suspects were obliterated by his blind focus on Geronimo. Footnote 16 Kenneth Olson had reported that both robbers fired their weapons. End of footnote. After failing to advance his case against Pratt, Callahan buried all references to Tyrone Hutchinson and turned back to his original eyewitnesses and his new star, Julio Butler, for someone dedicated to bringing down the Panthers and their leaders this appeared to be more fertile territory. On December 3, 1970, two weeks before the second anniversary of Carolyn Olson's death, a deputy DA ushered Butler before the Los Angeles County Grand Jury. For the record, the hairdresser declared that he was appearing against his will then launched into hours of testimony against the leader who'd expelled him from the Panthers. In Butler's version of events, he and Pratt had been warm friends who freely exchanged innermost secrets. He was asked if he'd seen Pratt on particular evening in December 1968. I did, Butler testified, that Pratt 
had visited his shop in the company of another black man named Tyrone. Pratt had called him outside because of fear that the hairdressing parlor might be bugged. Before the deputy DA continued the questioning, he introduced a subject that would become of crucial importance. By the way, he said, were you working for any law enforcement agency at that time? No. Were you an agent of the CIA or anything of that sort? No. Butler identified a picture of the white over red GTO Panther car and claimed that the ex-paratrooper Pratt carried a 45 caliber semi-automatic in a shoulder holster or in his waistband most of the time. On the day after he'd been visited by Geronimo and Tyrone, Butler continued, he read newspaper accounts of a shooting in Santa Monica, and then, I think it was later that evening, or the next day, I saw Pratt at the Panther's office. He said he had shot some people. He said it was in the city of Santa Monica, and he was hot. Butler told the grand jurors that several weeks later, Pratt told him that he destroyed the barrel on his 45 and that Bunchy Carter had ordered him to get rid of the hot GTO. Footnote 17. On the same day, the road warrior Geronimo Pratt was speaking at a meeting of Stokely Carmichael's Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Atlanta. End of footnote 17. After briefings about the suspected killer by the DA's office, Barbara Mary Reed and Kenneth Olson told their own stories to the grand jurors. Each had already selected Pratt from photo lineups. Their earliest description of killer number two, the shorter gunman, was that he was 5'8 or 5'9 with a light-skinned complexion and wearing a jacket. In the photo spread of 16 young African-American males shown to read, only three of the men were under six feet as shown by the height markers next to their heads. Thus, the lineup was effectively reduced to three. Of these, two were noticeably dark-skinned, unlike Pratt, and Pratt was the only one wearing a jacket. As attorney Stuart Hanlon was to say years later, that was a photo lineup of one. Overzealous police and prosecutors had used similar techniques for years. Reed told the jurors that she based her selection of Pratt on his face and jacket, which she now described as a safari jacket. On the night of the killing, two years earlier, she'd referred to an Eisenhower-type jacket. The discrepancy, six or eight inches of length and major differences of style, went unexplained. When the deputy DA pointed out that Pratt had facial hair, Mrs. Reed answered, yes, but he was clean-shaven when he was in the store. She made no mention of a widow's peak, which she described to police earlier perhaps because no widow's peak or other unusual hair characteristics appeared on the identikit she'd helped to assemble at the time of the killing. 
nor did she mention facial scars. Since childhood, Geronimo Pratt had two conspicuous chickenpox scars on his forehead. In his own testimony, Kenneth Olson made it seem as though he'd never been certain about his identification of Ernest James Perkins contradicting his positive ID for the Santa Monica police. The school administrator had been shown some 500 photographs of young black men before selecting Pratt. Almost as though he'd been briefed on the suspect's biography, he'd made a point of stressing the gunman's military bearing. I mean, he may not have a military background. I'm just saying there was a very commanding. He sounded like he could have been a drill instructor or something. I don't know. Pratt had been a drill instructor at Fort Bragg. The witness seemed to know this subject. On the basis of the information provided by Butler, Reed, and Olson, the grand jury returned a sealed indictment charging Elmer Geronimo Pratt with the murder of Carolyn Olson, assault with intent to commit the murder of her husband, and additional counts of robbery and conspiracy. This was the indictment that was opened in Superior Court when Sergeant Ray Callahan returned Pratt from Texas. It had been sealed for two months. Context of white supremacy. Alrighty, so we will pick up on chapter 12, Disorder in the Court. The chapters are not numbered, so I'm having to add them as we go. Picking up on chapter 12. I think I got a little off in my numbers, but that's because the chapters aren't numbered. The number to dial 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720 716 7300 decode 564 943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate email is untiljustice at gmail.com if you would like to write in your commentary I'll share uh, one email and then we will nab our callers. Uh, let's see. Email from one of our investors. Uh, let's see. On the road again. Number one. If you hadn't come to Philly and made us stop juggling and acting complacent, he said this ain't no joke and made us dig tunnels and put up sandbags. Frank Rizzo, police chief and later mayor, would have exterminated us. A lot of good men are alive today because of Geronimo. Learning constructive things from war is so characteristic of the global system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I think they, it is a cliche or often said that white people are, that so many uh, inventions and, and patents uh, and new pieces of technology come about during war times. Like white people, individuals classified as white are at their creative best when it's a time to do some 
mass organized killing like their brain computers really fire on all cylinders number two in Los Angeles Pratt immediately came under suspicion investigation same thing for a laundry list of unsolved crimes the Tate LaBianca murders Charlie Manson was trying to start a race war thus I can see how the FBI LAPD etc were trying to connect the murders to the Panthers flashback murder most foul number one at the hospital Kenneth Olson told detectives that he'd seen the robber at a distance of two to three feet a routine check established that on the night of the shootings Perkins had been locked in a prison facility at Tracy nearly 400 miles north of Santa Monica Kenneth Crimson Olson had been confident positive and wrong further evidence that eyewitness testimony is consistently unreliable as in the OJ Simpson trial Ugh, Santa Monica gang accused the insurance letter from Pratt's deadliest enemy remained unopened for months until it came to light in the course of a police internal affairs investigation I don't find this credible the LAPD didn't open it immediately hmm number two each had selected Pratt from photo lineups as attorney Stuart Hanlon was to say years later the photo was a lineup of one overzealous and overzealous police and prosecutions had used similar techniques for years the use of the term overzealous I believe is inaccurate the LAPD were willfully trying to frame Pratt just like the OJ investigation and trial OJ again number three in his own testimony Kenneth Olson almost as though he'd been briefed on the suspects biography he made a point of stressing the gunman's military bearing of course he was briefed yeah that does sound pretty obvious I don't know how he could just be that clairvoyant about him being a drill sergeant and all of that just Vietnam veteran being treated in really shabby manner throughout the book uh, we will get to the phone lines uh, he has other commentary but we haven't got that far in the book yet so we will return to that later uh, 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate Whew. you all don't know it but this is one of the most challenging broadcasts in terms of getting the audio corrected and all of that like wow it was a beast Whew. glad we made it let's see folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary to share proceed can I be heard greetings Mo in Dallas uh, greetings Gus uh, thank you for the program uh, greetings listeners and callers uh, a, f a couple of things um, stuck out to me uh, Marshall, Texas, um, yeah, it, it that that rang that, that that garnered my attention because my family is from Marshall, Texas. It is a an interesting piece of landscape, and it is it is it is like it is between um, Louisiana and Dallas. You know, uh, it's I think east of Dallas, west of Louisiana, and it's like right on the the border. A lot of people. Um, 
I know this because my family, is, like I said, is from there. A lot of people from Louisiana, um, they end up transplanting to Marshall, Texas, and then end up transplanting to Dallas for some reason. Um, so, I, um, I think that is a, a, I think that it was a, a meeting place of sorts just because of the, uh, the, the, the population of, of, I guess militant black people. I don't like using that word, but, you know, there was a very, it, I'll, I'll put it this way. There is a very strong sense of black self-respect in Marshall, Texas. Um, 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 and I, uh, and, and I, it's still there to this day, I believe. Um, uh, um, and uh, 500 Commerce Street, um, that is the Dallas County Jail. It's a legendary facility, at least in the city. Um uh, I, I just find it interesting that uh, that that he was held there, uh, uh, just because I, I'm aware of a few people who uh, who have who've been in in, in in that particular facility and the nature in which um, Geronimo's um, interaction was described in that facility, uh, the the fist fight as soon as you get in, like that is that is consistent with the stories that I've heard about individuals who, uh, who've actually entered that facility for some reason. Um, also Parkland hospital. Um, that was another flag for me. Um, Parkland hospital is another, uh, hospital. Um, it's well known throughout the, the Dallas Metroplex. Um, um, that is the hospital not to go to. Um, it is, it, it, there are certain urban legends in uh, black communities about places not to be, um, uh, and that's one of them. Like that, that like it, it is known that that hospital will kill you. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so that's all I have. I, I was born there, by the way. So is my son. That's all I have on my life. Can I be heard? Sir, yes, sir, retired firefighter. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to uh, everyone. Uh, being that it ended with Parkland Hospital, uh, I would begin my uh, report with uh, Parkland Hospital. Uh, as uh, it was written, that was the uh, place where the body of uh, President John Fitzgerald Kennedy was transported to. Uh, I actually, uh, out of that, uh, from a historical standpoint, uh, me and my offspring uh, uh, followed the trek that uh, the motorcade used to get him to that hospital and uh, went by and just drove by the emergency room area where the where the vehicles were parked at the time of uh, November 22nd, 1963. Uh, that was a couple of years ago where, where we did that. Uh, and and it, it looks like what the uh, previous caller was was talking about. It, it looks like a place that you don't want to go to for some sort of ailment. Uh, yes. Uh, uh the the chapter starts off with uh, notorious Frank Rizzo, 
uh, who uh, uh, I think uh, a lot of non-white black people in the uh, city of Philadelphia would have a uh, collective or personalized uh, infamous uh, terroristic stories about that particular uh, white person. Uh, uh, the uh, the Black Panther Party, uh, presumably with the assistance of uh, everything from the CIA to uh, FBI and some other different organizations that don't ha even have a distinction, uh, was uh, fragmented, fragmenting, uh, and uh, it became two personalities of Huey Newton and Eldridge Cleaver. The difference was Eldridge Cleaver was uh, in Algeria somewhere, uh, fleeing from the uh, absolute uh, arrest that would have taken place of him uh, from the uh, shooting that took place uh, on the day after the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was uh, murdered. Uh, and uh, uh, the the uh, constant bickering would be with Cleaver that he wanted to uh, motivate the Black Panther Party to be directly opposed to the quote unquote United States government. Uh, and, you know, but, but yet, like I said, he was saying that uh, tens of uh, thousands of miles away, uh, the the ending uh, between, between the relationship of the two did not uh, uh, end. Uh, it was an embarrassing type of end that I'm not going to talk about right now because we're reading this book. Uh, anyway, uh, as far as additional notes, I, I, I thought, I thought kind of like thought from the standpoint as a uh, family member, a male family member uh, itself when I was uh, re listening to the part where uh, uh, the Pratt family's uh, uh, father was lying and, and Gerard uh, came in and was kind of like displeased about what was going on when he said, you got my daddy on display. And uh, I, I, I thought of how a male child would feel uh, when the, the sister <laughs> said something that he, she said, uh, Gerard, uh, she said, we, we don't, we don't need that Panther stuff at the time, at a time like this. And, and then the mother, the, the mom came and, and uh, uh, I would figure commonly uh, uh, mention to her daughter, uh, you know, that uh, to leave to leave uh, Gerard alone. And uh, and she gave uh, some a brief history about how he became a Black Panther, and it was due to uh, the assistance of his dad. And uh, I would I would figure that he kind of like felt very comfortable, very a lot of gratitude. Uh, especially when your mom uh, makes that particular comment, and that kind of like would uh, uh, bring uh, everything to a, a peaceful uh, ending as opposed to people arguing and fussing and fighting uh, at a uh, quote-unquote funeral service of some type. Uh, yes, the uh, 
the plot is sticking with uh, Mr. Uh-oh. Am I still able to be heard? Yes, yes, sir. We can hear you. Okay, because my phone fell down. Uh, yes, uh, the plot is getting uh, thicker with the advent of Mr. Julio. Things are coming into uh, more and more focus. That uh, uh, being 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 that uh, he was transferred back into uh, to uh, Southern California, and uh, the uh, LAPD, along with a lot of other. Uh, uh secret uh so called secret organizations were doing their works to uh pin this murder charge on uh mr pratt uh we are seeing that and uh I may have some other things but that's that's i'll 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 detain it right now until later thank you Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Let's see. I'll keep an eye out on the switchboard, and then I will nab some of my own notes as well. Let's see. Get my highlights here. Wow. Before I even get to my highlights, four... Wallism. I think we just talked about that a few weeks back where someone, and again, I am never in the business of squashing motivation, especially uh, victims of racism who are eager, excited, willing to, to work in an urgent manner towards solving the problem, producing justice. That's what we need. So I'm not trying to squash that at all, but it was said, hey, maybe we need some four wallism, you know, get an institution where we can all get together and study. I said, hey, VGQ, maybe you can make it work. But with the COVID situation and then the Cointel Pro situation, it just seems kind of daunting uh, to be able to pull that sort of thing off. Uh, this year reading, wow, four wallism does not sound good at all. For a variety of reasons, uh, and we don't even have to get to Cointel Pro. I mean, we certainly that's a big theme, but the anti-blackness alone, man, squabbling and arguing uh, amongst all of these victims of racism about what to do, what not to do, and you're an agent and you're a coon and all the rest of it. I mean, woo kind of a big indictment of four wallism in this here book if people don't know that concept from mr fuller uh his code book uh just meaning uh coming together where you either have a building or this is going to be a group group uh we're going to get together at intervals regular intervals and pay some dues and that type of thing like white people have shown uh consistently that and efficiently uh that they are able to neutralize all of the black organization black groups uh if they don't infiltrate and become president themselves they're able to exactly what you heard with uep new we can put them in jail we can kill them get them on drugs keep arresting them and and use up all the money get them with a white woman get them with a white man all kinds of things all kinds of ways uh, of getting it done uh let's see 
notes I took from this week. Yep, first four wall and the converse to four wallism is united independent. That's one thing, Gusty Renegade for twelve years. Man, United Independent. Retired firefighter and Mo in Dallas. These are not my brothers and sisters. These are not my counter racist comrades. United Independent. We are not brothers, sisters, homies, partners, any other titles that folks want to come up with. He says he wrote an anguished note to another colleague. No one in Oakland has even tried to contact me about the matter. We're still trying to figure out the root cause. David Hilliard was, I thought, closer to me than any of my blood brothers, and he's the main one who upset me so. I sent him reports and tried to call. Also, I had my lawyer to deliver some messages. All this to no avail. Black brothers and black sisters and all of that and then when it come down to the come down man what brother black brother black sisters I'm by myself with the whole United States Army and police departments and FBI and CIA all aligned against me and my black brother I can't even get a letter from a pen pal and it'll be more of this to come but I mean this is like I said quite an indictment of four wallism right here United Independent, I think, is the way to go. Uh, Continuing. When... Is this out of order? My notes are a little out of order. That's... Eh, chalk it up. It's been a trifling day. Uh, Let's see if I can try and go back and do these in order. Uh, So, they start off. uh, Cleaver, he's ordered. He follows orders. Uh, Huey P. Newton says, uh, go underground and, and do this work with the other chapters so he goes out on the road uh, he says he goes to Philadelphia New Orleans Seattle what? I knew they had a black cha- uh, panther chapter here but I didn't know Geronimo Pratt came here uh, he taught panthers how to protect themselves from police raids like the ones in Chicago and LA a panther who later wrote journalist importance of black journalists uh, I don't know the term jiggling J-I-G-G-L-I-N-G jiggling I don't know what that means. He says, use it in a sentence. If he hadn't come to Philly and made us stop jiggling and acting complacent, he said, this ain't no joke and made us dig tunnels and put up sandbags. What is jiggling? I have to look that up. Frank Rizzo, we've heard before. We read Mumia Abu Jamal live from death row. He is one victim in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, who had a lot to say about Frank Rizzo and right there would have exterminated almost Mumia Abu-Jamal live from death row. They took his statue. In fact, I went to Philadelphia and took a picture. I climbed on his statue when it was there. They've taken it down since, but I climbed his statue and took a picture. I think I got the Frank Rizzo statue and the Sylvester Stallone statue. Excuse me, the Rocky, uh, Rocky Balboa statue. And that's about the same Rocky Balboa. Frank Rizzo, Statues of White Supremacy, but that's another program. In the archives, in fact. Next. Uh, Let's see. Pratt was contacted by his fellow Panther Melvin Cotton Smith 
and advised that Hewitt had ordered both of them to a meeting in Marshall, Texas, and previously mentioned, the theme would be unity. That is so common and tacky, even in 2021. No more bickering, said Smith, who seemed to be recasting himself in the role of Pratt's friend and sidekick. No more Cleaver faction, no more Newton faction, no more East Coast and West Coast. We all just Panthers going in a new direction. Us against the pigs. All that, re- that's why, all that rhetoric and stuff, man, like just be unity? What do you mean? Unity about what? Unity about a whole lot of uh, wacky slogans and such? Like, what do you mean, unity? After we spent all this time name-calling and accusing people and all the rest of it? Like, come on. And even, this is my homie. Keep that in mind. This is my homie, Mr. Cotton. Hmm. Uh, Let's see. Next. Uh, Make sure I didn't miss my other highlight. He talks about going to New Orleans and how that had such an impact on him. Obviously, we read Katrina after the flood and all about the desire housing project, which I think was one of the ones that was torn down, thankfully, after uh, Katrina. But things didn't seem to be any better 30 years later in New Orleans. Now, isn't that like an atrocious indictment of the system of white supremacy? Geronimo Pratt said he went there and was stunned. Uh, at the the misery and suffering of the black people there, I said the same thing when I went there in 2004, the year before Hurricane Katrina. I think Thomas in New York said the same thing. Like only place I've been, they didn't even have house numbers uh, on the houses. Everybody who goes to New Orleans, like wow, I cannot believe it. This is <laughs> can't believe that black people, anyone has to live like this, much less black people suffering. Uh, he continues. Let's see. Three more days passed before Cotton Smith said he finally reached Newton. Uh, jail at Commerce Spreed. He was placed in solitary confinement. The whole, he wondered what happened to his friend Cotton. Mm. My homies, my friends. Uh, let's see. The old East West Newton Cleaver feud, a fight had escalated to the point where Cleaver supporters tried to assassinate Newton by blowing out a brick wall at the San Francisco Panther office. Now, again, white involvement, who knows, this could have been, you know, some uh, agent provocateur uh, doing all of this. Who knows? But again, this is four wallism. United Independent, unity. All of this very important to keep in mind as we go about the business of trying to replace white supremacy with justice. Uh, Let's see. Next. So he gets uh, arrested in Dallas. They beat him up. Uh, They take him to Parkland Hospital where they took JFK. Remember Dr. Welsing told us that she remembers when JFK was first shot, they blamed it on a black person. Wasn't until a little while later that, oh, wait a minute, it wasn't a nigger. It was Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, Let's see. So they throw him in the cell with this guy named Trainwreck. He's big, maybe 6'4", 6'2", had a big dent down his forehead first thing I saw was train wreck trying to rape a little brother with a greased up broom handle it was as bad as anything I seen in Nam. the boy kept screaming and train wreck kept trying to shove this broom handle up his butt kissing him on his ears slobbering holding and choking him at the same time the man not rethinking Rufus Delectable Negro. Lots of the books that we have covered 
over the years on the context of white supremacy, even sentenced to science, uh, where in Pennsylvania, no less, uh, where Alan Hornblum and his book, Acres of Skin, where they talk about this is allowed, this is encouraged uh, in the prison culture of white supremacy racism. We know we're going to stuff as many black males as possible in these uh, prisons, get them into some anti-sex Yes, yeah, stick your stick your genitals, stick your penis in the rectum of another male. That's what to do. Yeah, that's what you want to do behind prison for the next, you know, however long you're going to be stuffed up here. Talk about putting you in greater confinement where your behavior, your personality has totally changed. You're not even the same person once this ordeal is over after you've been exposed to this sort of thing. And then watch this theme continue. That was one of the main themes I thought this week. The the folly the failure of four wallism and the man not the sexual uh, molestation and abuse of black males in greater confinement those seem to be the major themes to me this week Uh, he continues right after all this train wreck and and raping this young black male uh, Pratt even continues he said uh, slobbering holding and choking him at the same time I said hey man leave that kid alone we fought for an hour just me and train wreck and I wore his ass out thought pause I don't think he meant that you know sexual way but my goodness um party's breaking down so he some other panthers get placed in greater confinement they tell him the party's breaking apart cops sent so many snitches you're afraid to talk to anybody that's why we say again gotta be codified anything that you say you are speaking as though everyone in the known universe can hear what you're saying if you're not willing to have that be the case then maybe you shouldn't say it that's codification because it's not going to be any secrets uh, continuing <clears throat> uh, 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 already mentioned Charlie Manson recently deceased best selling author so then uh, Pratt, he's got all these injuries uh, from Vietnam, veteran to tours. He uh, says he was trying to go to the restroom. He's got bouts of constipation and diarrhea. He tries to go to the restroom when he's got a toilet. And he says the guards would walk past his cell as he strained over the hole in the floor. Some stopped and peered. He said that the guard observed that he had a cute little ass. The man not rethinking Rufus delectable Negro let's see let's see for 76 uh, he says Geronimo tried to stand he was slammed against the wall he landed a two-handed chop before he went down in a flurry of punches and kicks he awoke naked and alone the man not again they talked about that uh, delectable negro as well that uh, on the plantation a lot of these punishments would be inflicted on a nude body uh, so that they can uh, inflict punishment on the genitals and or this can become a form of sexual gratification as well you don't even have control to, to keep your body clothed uh, let's see. A guard and it continue, A guard told him he'd been sentenced to B A A C, bare ass and concrete. It's even institutionalized as a part of the punishment that you're going to be nude here in the prison. 
I thought that those were some of the major uh, themes. And and it even can, he would be fed bread and water in that uh, delectable Negro. We'll starve you, sexually exploit you, and we have total control of food. Maybe we'll uh, cannibalism. We'll eat on you and or we'll starve you. Make sure that you don't get anything to eat. Uh, let's see. Anything else? I thought it was interesting. They pointed out, they said they had, that <clears throat> there's a problem when you have uh, white witnesses, black suspected uh, culprits or vice versa of identification uh, as though he was saying uh, white people tend to think all black people look alike and maybe vice versa that some of the white people were struggling to uh, pick out, identify some of the uh, black people. Uh, very Similar, I thought we heard a lot of echoes of O.J. Simpson uh, in this about these identifications. More of that to come. Parallels with these two cases. Uh, let's see. Anything else I need to pick out? Yeah, the total, I mean, just seeing the conduct of the police here where they're talking to someone who says, oh, yeah, I know the two people who did this crime. They bragged about it. They bragged about it in front of other people. They had details and all the rest of it. And you totally bury this information. That tends to be exculpatory. That's the type of thing that you're supposed to share with the defense. But I mean, then, and that's what I said. Hey, these are white people that were shot. The Olsons. They don't even care about them that say, hey, let's do the right thing. You know, this is a white woman who was killed. They shot her husband. He could have died too. Like, let's do the right thing. Let's go out and get these folks if they did it. Bam, we'll get them, you know, we'll pin something else on Geronimo Press. Tons of crimes, we'll put something, but I mean, we'll find some black person, you know, that kind of get, put that on him and not even worry. But I mean, hey, let's make sure we do right by the Olsons. No, they don't even care about that. Like, whatever. <laughs> Kill this, we'll just stick that on Geronimo Pratt. We know he didn't do it, but, you know, whatever. We even got this nigger to come in here and tell us exactly who might have done this crime. Eh. Not even worried about that. Bury that. We don't want that to get out. We're gonna we're gonna blame this one on Geronimo Pratt, and we'll dig around and poke around until we can figure out a way to make it stick. That is a disgrace. Again, you can keep that in mind for O.J. Simpson too. But yeah, whatever. Uh, let's see. And then this one is especially bad because it's two years. Can you imagine a two? Even if you had like a perfect memory like you you glanced at his shoelaces you know the exact size of shoes what type of socks he had on the stripe on the socks everything the color of his zipper I mean you look them up and down are you gonna remember all that details two years later like good lord (laughs) like man it takes them two years to poke around and get enough evidence to actually charge him with a like come on come on let's see anything else oh I thought it was funny they just had Christmas up there Uh, the uh, Panthers when they purged uh, Geronimo Pratt uh, and they gave one of the reasons that he was indulging in Christmas gifts like find any reason uh, I thought we were black brothers and I get all this for buying Christmas gifts like for real for Wallism let's see anything else anything else I need to Yeah, I guess I can pause for there. Uh, any other thoughts uh, folks need to get in on the section of the audio that we heard, first portion that we heard?
folks satisfied. See, I told you, folks were much more satisfied with uh, O.J. Simpson. Like, lots more to say on Orenthal James. Uh, Let's see. Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, No, I don't like um, being negative about it. That's why I don't have a comment too much because I'm not a fan of the ideology of the black people. But, um, and I don't like how they get promoted as this great thing. And it's like, I'm looking at it like this is definitely not what to do. I agree with your four-wallism. Um, groups and organizations have, are very easy to infiltrate. Um, if everyone's just operating off a of code, doing their own thing, it's very difficult to um, pick out who's who. Uh, I can only think of one organization that people join and remain in while it's under federal investigation. It has local, county, state, federal, and international law enforcement actively pursuing them for criminal activity uh, besides the Black Panthers, <laughs> which they did. And that's like the mafia. Like, this is insanity um, to see what happened to these young black people um, who could have had their ideology in their houses and not been in this group and been punished. Uh, The prison abuse, um, having the excrete on the floor, um, police looking in the cell, keeping you naked. It reminded me, and it's still happening, Khalif Browder, just thrown in a hole, uh, put there for years, just left there um, and going insane. Um, these tactics that they're using on the Black Panthers, um, everyone looks like a snitch. Everyone looks like a confidential informant. You don't know who to trust. They use this on criminal organizations like drug car, you know, um, little gangbangers and things like that today. So, um, very effective. Um, and, um, Man, I, like, if you look at the ideology and everything that's happening, it just didn't age well over the years. Like, this this is totally, it's not going to work. Um, the part where he went back home, um, they put his father with a rosary, you know, um, and um, the mother told the story of the father's life. I find that a lot um, in black literature, that we don't find out a lot about our um, family members until they die. It's like, oh, now you tell us the story? Like, it would have been nice to know the story while he was alive, you know? Um, it's like, so. I think it's the trauma that we deal with as Black people over our lifetime, especially these people from that generation. They just didn't want to share it. I'm here, my mind. Thank you. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. I think the great Isabel Wilkerson talked about that. Lots of uh, victims of racism who didn't really do too much talking about what happened to them. Parents didn't really talk too much to their children about things that happened. So sometimes you don't get those stories at all or get them, you know, after they passed on or what have you. A lot of times it's a lot of pain behind that too. A lot of mistreatment and stuff. So people are a little uh, hesitant to talk about some of the moments that maybe are not their most proud, but very important that you get that information so we can get a better understanding of, of the folks who are around us. Uh, let's see. 
Any other folks comments before we get to audio segment two? Folks satisfied? Grand. Uh, be mindful. Uh, the four wallism that will continue as we get more information in this chapter. Uh, more info on. Uh, Johnny L. Cochran Jr., uh, this chapter specifically. Uh, and then I believe uh, the sexual exploitation of uh, black males that will continue with this segment as well. Uh, we will pick up, let's see, we're on chapter 12, I believe. I said I got the numbers off because they're not numbered in the book. So I'm adding those in just to try to help minimize a little bit of confusion for me and the listeners. Uh, last man standing. The Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Pratt, Context of White Supremacy, Audio Segment 2. Chapter 11 Disorder in the Court Before he could defend himself against the murder charge, Geronimo Pratt had to appear in court in the original conspiracy case a grab bag of 72 counts that had been brought against him, his common-law wife, Sandra, and 11 other Panthers after the raid that destroyed their Central Avenue headquarters. The tennis court murder case would have to wait its turn. The new and mysterious charges were bothersome, but Geronimo expected the matter to fade away as soon as the DA verified that he'd been in Oakland on the night of the shootings and could call a dozen witnesses to prove it. Besides, what jury would believe the likes of Julio Butler? From the first sharp rap of Superior Court Judge George Dell's gavel, it became clear that the District Attorney's Office planned a show trial that would damage the Panthers' image if not finish them off. In his opening statement, a deputy DA promised to prove that Geronimo Pratt and his henchmen had stockpiled weapons, conspired to kill lawmen, and lured the police into a murderous firefight. The defense, including Pratt's new lawyer, Marvin Zinman, responded that the LAPD had subjected the Panthers to a two-year campaign of harassment in a deliberate attempt to provoke a serious incident and that the Panthers had forfeited their headquarters in anticipation of the same type of midnight raids that had resulted in Panther deaths in other cities. As Johnny L. Cochran Jr. said in his opening statement on behalf of his client Willie Stafford, we will show that the LAPD got exactly what it asked for. They attacked, the Panthers defended. That's called self-preservation. It's the oldest rule of nature. From the first testimony, it was clear that the state's case would be built on inside information. In the racial crucibles of Watts and South Central LA, it had never been difficult for police to develop informers. In exchange for information, deals were made with prosecutors, charges reduced 
or dropped, records expunged, favors granted. Members of street gangs were quick to drop the dime about a rival group's activities. Certain disenfranchised blacks would snitch off their best friends for a $20 bill or a pat on the back. Zinman, Cochran, and their fellow defense attorneys found their defense sabotaged by witnesses and prosecutors who seemed to know their every strategy in advance a crippling liability in any litigation. Sometimes it seemed that they could read our minds, Cochran wrote later. Maybe I thought they're that good. Maybe they're just lucky. As it turned out, they were neither. They were skulking beneficiaries of lawless treachery. One of my co-counsels in the Panther trial was an FBI informant. When he was confronted with his misconduct, he said he informed because he feared the Panthers were plotting to escape. His excuse was as contemptible as his conduct. Sadly, he would not be the last of his loathsome species I would encounter. As the months dragged on in what would become the longest conspiracy trial in California history, the prosecution relied heavily on the marathon testimony of Melvin Cotton Smith, the police informer who'd steered Pratt into their hands in Dallas. Day after day, the ex-convict rang variations on his central theme that the Panthers intended to start a revolution by killing pigs. On Friday, July 23, 1971, five months after the tedious trial opened, he testified that the official BPP slogan was, Off the Pigs. Footnote 18. The official slogan was, Power to the People. End of footnote. When he was asked to name Panthers who used the expression, he pointed into the courtroom and said, I've heard every panther in the room make that statement. I didn't know we had panthers in the audience, Judge Dell commented. Welcome, gentlemen. The 42-year-old Smith told how Geronimo Pratt and his attack teams used to go into the sewers at night and make maps trying to find 77th Station, their leader ordering his men to find a place under there close enough to blow the place up. The informer told of serving on one such mission and wearing a mask against the sewer gas. Pratt, he said, led the subterranean party with a submachine gun. Sometimes the sewer mappers became lost under the city streets. Smith also described the digging of an escape tunnel that remained unfinished on the night of the police raid. During a recess, Pratt admitted to his lawyer, Marvin Zinman, that there'd been indifferent attempts at digging a tunnel to provide a safe haven from police firepower and to collect dirt for the sandbags that eventually saved their lives. A defensive measure, 
like everything else we did. As for the sewer searches, he said, What dumb son of a bitch would take a submachine gun into a tunnel? To shoot who? The lawyer asked Pratt how Cotton Smith had managed to insinuate himself into the party's inner circles. I wish I knew, Pratt said. He fooled me, fooled Bunchy, fooled everybody. He was a good liar, I guess. Zenman reminded him of the old expression, when you lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas. Right on, Geronimo replied, but you don't expect to get up with rats. After a weekend break, Cotton Smith provided lurid testimony that appeared in the Los Angeles Times under the headline, Panthers Taught Children to Hate Police. The ex-convict informer told of female teachers rehearsing children in lyrics like Piggy Wiggy, You Got to Go Now, Oink Oink, Bang Bang. They were taught to draw pictures of people killing these pigs, people sticking knives in them and shooting them. He told of his horror at seeing a seven-year-old boy playing with a pipe bomb at Panther headquarters. I asked him what he was doing with it, and since he didn't have any business with it, I took it away. The star witness's most eloquent testimony concerned the raid on Panther headquarters. Neglecting to mention that he'd been acting as an FBI agent provocateur, he told the jury, We were supposed to kill them at the door and then take our weapons and leave. When the people arrived there, they didn't want them to find anything but dead pigs. In November, nine months into the trial, Pratt's attorney Zinman and Willie Stafford's attorney Cochran held a brief meeting with Pratt in the lockup. Mr. Cochran just wanted to shake your hand, Zinman said. You guys are a mutual admiration society. Geronimo had watched Cochran in action and spoke highly of him in a conversation with his friend Stafford. That guy's cool, Pratt had said. I like the way he wears his natural. Not afraid to look black. Most of these lawyers are imitation whites. Pratt was also impressed by Cochran's passionate advocacy. In court, the aggressive young lawyer acted as though his own fate was on the line. Long after his colleagues had subsided, Cochran would remain on his feet, challenging witnesses, poking the air, demanding that his client be accorded his rights under the U.S. and California constitutions, which he often cited line by line. When a deputy DA referred to Stafford as Willie, Cochran jumped to his feet. Are you referring to Mr. Stafford? He asked. Judge Dell had threatened him with contempt several times. After a handshake in the attorney's interview room, Geronimo learned that Cochran was born in Louisiana but had gone west on the Sunset Limited at the age of six. 
my Creole uncle Aristide Albert was a Pullman porter on that train the lawyer said Pratt laughed and told him that fellow Panthers Bunchy Carter Eldridge Cleaver Huey Newton and several others had traveled the same route none of y'all knew it Geronimo said but you passed right behind my house Morgan City was only a flag stop we used to say that's why they called it the Sunset Limited the ex-Louisianans discovered something else in common both had been undersized high school quarterbacks Cochran recalled the advice of his Los Angeles high school coach to the team's lineman the quarterback is like your mother don't let anybody get to him don't let them get in there and blindside Cochran at Morgan City colored high Pratt said we had a different approach run for your life the reminiscences were interrupted by the unexpected arrival of sergeant Raymond Callahan of the LAPD's Panther unit we just identified a Jane Doe at the morgue the Panther unit leader told Pratt your wife's dead so's your baby the body of pregnant Sandra Red Lee had been found in a sleeping bag in a suburban gutter shot five times once through the stomach Cochran wrote later to the day I die I will retain two memories of that awful moment Geronimo's nearly imperceptible but successful struggle to retain his composure and the smirk that played across the detective's face Timothy Pratt stood in for his jailed brother at Sandra's funeral services and recited a passage from Black Mother a poem that Bunchy Carter had written just before his death Black Mother I must confess that I still live though you are not free forgive my coward's heart the frenzy of the whole thing screaming crying black power in his cell Geronimo wondered if the increasingly narcotized Huey Newton and his cohorts had been behind the execution Sandra free on bail had been a fervent supporter of Newton's enemy Cleaver and had served as a link between Geronimo and the exiled Panther leader until her last days she had received death threats from the Newton faction the Los Angeles Times continued its intense coverage of the Panthers under the headline Panther slaying may be start of Cleaver Newton showdown moderate members of the feuding factions viewed the article as a blatant attempt to widen the schism the same reporter who had once described Pratt as a trained assassin and a disastrous byproduct of the Vietnam War now related a police theory that Newton's hitmen had tortured Pratt's mistress while trying to learn from her when Cleaver would be returning to the United States footnote 19
It was years before Geronimo learned the truth about the murder, and it turned out to be unrelated to the Cleaver-Newton feud. Red's problems went back to her days in New York. Long before we ever met, she'd worked as a madam and tricked with a Jewish guy in the mob. When she first hooked up with the Panthers, she gave us inside information about the New York crime families, how the mob pushed heroin into schools in Harlem, Bed-Stuy, Jamaica, Queens, names and dates about hits. Heavy stuff. The Panthers had a strict no-drugs policy and we flashed our people in New York to run the Mafia out of our neighborhoods. The mob found out she violated their code of Omerta and killed her trick with the big mouth. She told me there was a contract on her too, but I said, stick tight with us, baby, and you'll be safe. Then I went to jail and she was defenseless. The LAPD tipped the mob where she was staying. A mafia hitman executed her slow and easy, shot her in the arms, then in the leg, and then in the stomach. I guess she still wouldn't tell them what they wanted to know, so he shot her in the head. End of footnote. On Monday, November 15, talk of retribution was in the air, and court personnel on the eighth floor of the Hall of Justice were tense. Deputies with shotguns waited for riot calls. The Panther defendants entered the courtroom reluctantly after milling around in the holding tank for almost an hour. Newton's supporters were assigned to one table, Cleaver's to another. Just as the jurors were taking their seats, a Cleaver backer clubbed the nearest Newton supporter with a briefcase. The melee was on. As Cochran, Zinman, and a dozen other attorneys scrambled for safety, Judge Dell and the prosecutors backed toward the judge's chamber, open jackets revealing the sidearms that were supposed to be banned in the courtroom. The aggravated Pratt felt disappointed in his warriors and tried to hold them back. These were my Panthers, he explained later. My Panthers are supposed to be disciplined. But when deputies waded in with shotgun barrels and clubs, he joined in the fight. It was like nothing any of us had ever seen before, Cochran wrote later. They began beating our clients. And within seconds, the courtroom floor was literally a wash in blood. Geronimo ended up prone on the prosecution table, a shotgun muzzle a few inches from his face. A headline in the next day's Los Angeles Times informed readers, Husband of Slain Woman Leads Attack. Elmer Pratt, the article said, was charging after Albert Armour, who had fled to the jury box when a deputy pointed a revolver at his head and yelled, Pratt, stop! Get back over here! Pratt recalled later, By then, the newspapers had trashed me so bad they could have accused me of the Lindbergh kidnapping and people would have believed it. I'm not even sure I hit 
anybody. I just reacted, that's all. I hate to think of Panthers fighting Panthers. The cops always used the media to make us look like gorillas. They were better at propaganda than we ever were. In the days following the brawl, Judge Dell clamped down on belligerents and attorneys. While waiting to enter the court, Pratt and the other prisoners were separated and chained. A sign was posted informing lawyers that the bailiff's first responsibility is courtroom security, a veiled warning that hostages would be on their own. Defense lawyers found their objections routinely overruled. Cochran was held in contempt for arriving late from lunch, an offense usually disciplined by a frown or a few words. To worsen matters, race relations had been deteriorating in California courts and prisons following a bloody chain of events that started when a white guard killed three black convicts at Soldad Prison and inmates retaliated by pitching a guard to his death from an upper tier. After career criminal George Jackson was charged with the murder, his teenage brother Jonathan tried to break him out of prison and turned the San Rafael County Courthouse into an abator. Not long afterward, George Jackson started a shooting war of his own that ended with the deaths of three guards and three prisoners, including himself. African-American convicts hailed Jackson as a martyr and mounted rebellions in San Jose, Dallas, Boston, San Antonio, and other cities. The bloodiest uprising came in September 1971 at Attica in upstate New York, where 31 prisoners and nine guards died in the worst riot in American prison history. The Los Angeles Hall of Justice wasn't the only place where courtroom personnel began to carry guns. On Thursday, December 9, 1971, three months after Attica, Johnny Cochran nodded to his parents in the courtroom and began his final argument on behalf of his client, Stafford. Preparing his remarks, the night before, he decided to jettison the flowery formalities that he'd been taught at Loyola Law School. He had mixed feelings about the lead prosecutor, Ronald M. Mike Carroll, whose case relied so heavily on turncoat information from the underworld. This jury was markedly different from the typical white middle-class Los Angeles jury. It consisted of two whites, six African Americans, three Chicanos, and an Asian American. One of these jurors, Cochran told himself, is bound to have street experience with cops and informers and be skeptical of their motives. He'd already seen suggestions of doubt in their facial expressions. He began his closing comments with an evisceration. He described Cotton Smith's lifetime of crime, outlined his duplicities, and drubbed him with epithets like lower than a snake, Uncle Tom, and a flunky for the prosecution. Smith he said, would never be anything but a mugger and a thug, his chosen professions and such criminals often curried favor with lawmen. Hence Smith's enthusiasm for ratting out, 
his former Panther colleagues and his inclination not only to involve himself in Panther action but to initiate it and push it to extremes. There's a word for that kind of person, Cochran said. I don't know if I can pronounce it. Agent provocateur. You don't need to look it up. Just look at Mr. Melvin Cotton Smith. He's the definition. Cochran ridiculed the informer's claim that the Panthers planned to kill cops to jumpstart a black revolution. How many L.A. police officers did these bloodthirsty Panthers kill? He asked. Zero. If all these mad dogs were running around looking for cops to kill, how come they never killed a single one? Never sniped one from a rooftop? Never blew up one of their squad cars? Never killed one? He paused, then said, Some killers, some revolution. Near the end of his summation, Cochran turned toward the prosecution table and his white adversary, Carroll. He accused the deputy DA of joining forces with the criminal Cotton Smith in a callous disregard for the rights of the defendants. Cochran reminded the jury that throughout the trial, Carroll had spoken contemptuously of the Panthers' social programs and suggested that they were nothing but a cover for violence. Mr. Carroll is somewhat happy with the status quo and doesn't want a change, the black lawyer said. I can understand some of the things that Mr. Carroll can't, and I ask you to consider your own experience in weighing the credibility of all the testimony. Judge Dell broke in with a charge that Cochran was using borderline tactics. When he tried to continue, the judge said, That is unworthy of you, Mr. Cochran. But Cochran considered race to be at the heart of the conspiracy case and refused to subside. Later, the other defense lawyers took up the theme and one outdid Cochran in his own final argument. Attorney James Gordon called the officers in the raiding party racists who went to the headquarters under false pretenses and then lied in court. He told the jury, if you find the defendants guilty, you are exonerating the police action and setting a precedent that the doorway of the people in the ghetto can be kicked down at will. The crusty Judge Dell waited till the jury began deliberations and motioned the defense attorneys most of them African Americans to the bench. You gentlemen have been entrusted by the court with this appointment, he said, and you have failed in that trust. I'll never appoint any of you attorneys again. Cochran was more concerned about the opinion of his beloved mother and his church deacon father. I am very, very proud of you, son. Johnny L. Cochran Sr. told him after the courtroom emptied out. Hattie B. Cochran gave him a maternal hug and said she would never forget his eloquence. You said what needed to be said.
they laughed together when a courtroom habitué shook Cochran's hand and said, You nailed it, Johnny. This whole thing is about color. There wouldn't even be a case if these guys were called the White Panthers. It took the jury 11 days to reach a verdict on the 72 counts. Cochran wrote later, I never had heard so many not guilties in my life. The Panthers were acquitted on the most serious charges, but Geronimo Pratt, Willie Stafford, and seven others were found guilty of the rare charge of conspiracy to possess illegal weapons. Pratt's attorney, Marvin Zinman, was exultant. It shows the jurors believed the police were the aggressors, he told reporters. Deputy D.A. Carroll claimed victory and told reporters, This is the first time in the United States a conspiracy charge of any kind has been returned against Black Panther defendants. Judge Dell congratulated the jurors on their coolness. He referred to the melee in the courtroom and noted that a jury under these circumstances might have been stampeded and found everyone guilty. He said that the final verdict was not very different from the one I would have reached. Two weeks later, after the Christmas and New Year's holiday, Geronimo Pratt was sentenced to five years imprisonment. He'd been held in solitary confinement in Los Angeles County Jail for a year ever since his return from Dallas and a murder trial in the Santa Monica tennis court case still lay ahead. Context of white supremacy. Uh, that will do it for the second audio segment, and we will pick back up there next Thursday. Uh, as we continue with Last Man Standing. The number to dial again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, we missed you totally, and you think you have commentary to share. Definitely do not wait until the last minute. feel like we've heard Johnny Cochran waiting for a verdict a bunch of times now over the last month or so. Uh, if you have commentary to share on the second audio segment or any extra comments uh, from the first portion of the reading, feel free. Uh, let me make sure I get in our other email or the rest of our uh, email. Let me see. All right. Uh, picking up, uh, our investor continues. Uh, disorder in the court. Number one, prosecutors seem to know their every strategy in advance. Cochran wrote later, maybe I thought they're that good. Maybe they're just lucky. As it turned out, they were neither. They were the skulking beneficiaries of lawless treachery. One of my co-counsels in the Panther trial was an FBI informant. I guess the prosecution was just being
Got cut off, Gus? Can anybody else hear me? I can hear you. I can am, hear I, you I, sir. am I not being heard? Let's see. Did I get? We can hear you. Okay, now. you're back. Did I get you're disconnected? Back. I think so. Okay. Okay. Been some wacky uh, audio. It's been a rough Thursday. Nothing. Nothing easy on Thursday. My goodness. We'll see if maybe tomorrow is better. All right. Saying uh, number two. Email lost my place with all the... Okay, number two. The jury was markedly different from the typical white middle-class Los Angeles jury. It consisted of two whites, six African-Americans, three Chicanos, and an Asian-American. Whoa. That reminded me so much of O.J. Simpson. Whoa. Eight black people, two white people. Uh, Oh, excuse me. It was nine. Sorry, it was nine black people. One non-white, non-black male, and then the two white women on the final jury. So kind of similar, very diverse mix. Anyway, the racial makeup of the jury is so critical. In the Derek Chauvin trial, nine jurors have been selected, five white, two black, and one Hispanic, whatever that means. Thus far, the selection process would seem to favor Defendant Chauvin in my mind. We will stop there. So we'll pick up... Uh, with the rest of his commentary for next week. Uh, let's see. Folks who dialed in, I'll try to get the folks that we missed totally first, uh, and then we'll pick up everybody else. Uh, let's see. People have a hand up that we did not hear at all first time around. Uh, if you have a hand up, thoughts to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, Emmy. Yes, ma'am. Greetings, beautiful people. Um, I haven't shared in a while, and uh, one, I remember this was way back in the beginning when we started, but I looked up a picture of Geronimo, and he looks like a black man to me. I didn't understand all the other um, qualifiers or description adjectives that were used for him because he seemed like a black man to me, looks like a black man to me. Um, For this one, I always, my heart always drops whenever I hear about um, sexual abuse in general, but sexual abuse of black men, black boys and black men. Um, So the vignette or the story about the rape with the broomstick and all of that, um, it always just conjures up, and, and not conjure in a magical way, but it always brings up a lot of emotion for me. I just wanted to state that. Um, I think, and maybe I missed the segue because sometimes my service does drop out and then I'm trying to get to work and sometimes people are talking to me, so maybe I might have missed it. But I kind of would have liked a little bit more um, explanation on how and when the Panthers started using drugs. And, you know, because I feel like that's a coin tell pro thing. Like white people put the drugs in, maybe lock some of them up, got them hooked on drugs, let them up, and they kept using the drugs, something like that. But maybe there was a part where that was explicit and I missed it. If that was, someone could chime in and let me know, and then maybe I can go try to find where that was. But I would have liked a little bit more about that. And then if it's not actually in there, if there's a book that talks about it, 
I'd be interested if we put that on the book club, just, you know, and I know there's the one about drugs and Tupac and whatnot, but I don't know if that was ever read in the book club. Anyway, um, and then the part where uh, Geronimo is at his father's funeral and uh, there's about to be tension amongst the siblings and then the mother talks to them and then but talks to them for three hours. Not that this has anything specifically to do with um, Geronimo or Black Panthers or anything like that, but remembering being a child myself and also working with children, even because I think you're still, you're not a child once you're grown, right? But in relation to your parents, you still are their child. So in some ways we still, you know, you have the same respect and the love and adoration and connection. Like, you know, no matter how old you get, you're still going to be the child of your parents or your parents' child. And the fact that, like, the three hours just stuck out to me because that's something that is so important to me is talking, communicating, sharing the stories. And I think it helps to heal a lot of things and also prevent a lot of wounds and just do a lot to keep uh, the care unit in some language or the family unit together. So I really liked that, that that was put in the text, three hours to talk about who your father was, how he influenced all y'all, and we're not about to break down over this and storm out of here and all that and create a bunch of extra family drama. I really appreciated that. Um, and I will stop there and let other people comment while I think about the other things because uh, I didn't get to take notes. You know, I'm driving at work and whatnot. But anyway, thank you all for listening to me. Namaste. Much obliged, Emmy. I don't believe, at least in the portion that we've read thus far, I don't think that they gave like a full explanation of how exactly Huey P. Newton got involved into consuming drugs. Uh, I think they did explicitly point out that that contradicted the uh, platform of the party where that was grounds for expulsion, but uh, maybe that'll come. I know there's a lot more information in the book on Huey P. Newton, so maybe that'll come. I know uh, some of that is in uh, the documentary that we started with, All Power to the People, uh, and even connecting that to the drug use, to being a part of the Cointel Pro program. Uh, some of that is also uh, Vietnam, uh, where a lot of soldiers ended up being uh, getting hooked on drugs and then brought that back home. There was a huge explosion of heroin. Some of that is also Cointelpro in uh, getting lots of heroin out uh, into areas where black people live so that they would be strung out and couldn't, you know, be politicized and focusing on other things. So a lot of it goes back to Cointelpro, but there are lots of different components of how uh, how that happened, uh, specifically with the Panthers. Like, oh, yeah, I think uh, – and, and specifically – I think in that documentary and in some of the other sources, they point out that it was uh, the prison component, that that had a big impact on changes in Huey P. Newton's uh, conduct and how things were organized, even drug usage, uh, the time that he was in greater confinement, and then conduct afterwards seemed to be radically different. Uh, but we'll have to see if there'll be more details. Uh, Can I be heard?
Uh oh. Sound like he got cut off again. We can hear you. Can anybody? Yeah, sound like he got Gus got cut off again. I think. That's yes. crazy. Am I still not oh, being there heard? There he goes. You, you're you're back now. <laughs> I I just asked to be uh, heard again. <laughs> Crazy, crazy. I was saying, uh, I was just making sure we didn't have anybody that we missed totally, and uh, it seems that that's the case. So uh, if folks we missed totally, get your hand up. Other than that, retired firefighter, proceed. Yes. uh, Mr. Newton uh, did have a lot of problems uh, when he was uh, finally released. Uh, there's several uh, books on them, books on it. I can't, I can't give you a title right now, but I have, I have those books around here somewhere. Uh, and in turn, uh, it was alluded uh, to what the strategy, the newest strategy for the Black Panther Party, uh, uh, when. Uh, uh, Mr. Pratt was advised to uh, basically what what it, what it was. It, it was a level of what they call going underground. Uh, the Black Panther that's in Cuba right now. What's her name? Uh, uh, Asada. What's her name, Gus? Say it again. Asada. Yeah. Yes, Miss Shakur. Uh, she she was. Uh, a part of that as far as uh going into to that level of uh of operation it started taking place in and around the 19 the very early 1970s uh uh what they call going underground so to speak and in turn what a lot of chapters was were doing uh the uh as you mentioned uh purposely uh drugs were that's when they first started coming in at mass into into the largest areas where non-white people are allowed to stay. You know, the Washington D.C.s, the the uh, the uh, uh, the Bronx, uh, Harlem, that sort of thing, uh, because they didn't they didn't want they didn't want these they didn't want these black males coming back from Vietnam who who were who were becoming uh, energized. Uh, to doing something about racism, white supremacy, because they certainly was experiencing it, experiencing it, experiencing it in Vietnam, and in turn listening to radio reports and whatnot, what was going on over in the states, uh, and uh, and when they came back home, what they was going to do, like Geronimo Pratt, to contribute, and in turn there was a looseness on drugs by the end of uh, this 1960s. So a lot of those guys were getting hooked on drugs and then coming back into an environment. And in turn, the Black Panther Party, what they were doing, they were confiscating the narcotics. Uh, This particular book was basically implying that, I mean, you know Huey Newton couldn't, I mean, he, he wouldn't have been able to go to anybody for any help, you know, for his mental issues. So just like anybody else would do that has, you know, some serious issues, they would have, they would self-medicate. 
and he became he became very uh attached to drugs uh the the room of the corner to these books that I've read was stating and uh hopefully that that provides some assistance towards what the questions that were being brought up he became very he 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 had this tower that he stayed in uh i believe in Oakland this uh condo where he stayed way up at the top and and he would basically rule, rule so to speak and have people to come up to visit him and and if things weren't said or done right people were getting beaten uh up there in that apartment where he was at with uh some of his uh most closest uh compadres at the time uh and and it was some you know some serious stuff that was going on even i mean Bobby Seale was uh, uh assaulted uh when he went up there and he when when he came down he he had gotten out of the Black Panther party at that time so it 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 a lot of a lot of things were going on during that time uh yeah and there there's information on that also i just can't think of the titles and whatnot for right now uh thank you Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, uh, John Patash's book, FBI's War Against Tupac Shakur and Black Males. Uh, And I mentioned those two just because those are well footnoted, so they will mention a lot of the other books that also uh, have information. The FBI's uh, Agents of Repression. War Churchill, Jim Vanderwall, uh, the FBI's war against the Black Panther Party and the American Indian Movement. Uh, those are some, I think even Blacks, uh, not Black Soldier Blues, uh, Pipe Dream Blues. Titles are too close. Pipe Dream Blues. I think he talks about some of that as well uh, and the impact of Vietnam uh, and a lot of the drug use that came uh, that was, I shouldn't just say came in, a lot of the drugs that were heavily dumped in areas where black people reside uh, right after Vietnam and right that would also be right after the so-called civil rights movement uh, during the 70s right during the time that we're talking about early and mid 70s there was a lot of drugs uh, heroin those type of drugs in the area at that time Um, I think that's in Pipe Dream Blues there are quite a few others lots of books that go into uh, detail about how all of that connected and I'm trying to think of titles that would bring that in with Cointel Pro uh, as well in the documentary there's probably some other documentaries too that talk about all that anywho um, other folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary proceed Thomas in New York yes sir Yes, yes, sir. Um, man, uh, all these crimes, including murders, that have been falsely attributed to Mr. Pratt and the Black Panther members, and therefore meant they were not solved um, or properly investigated to find out the actual perpetrators. Um, Los Angeles Police Department decades of pinning murders on black people instead of solving them. Um, Back to OJ again. Um, Maybe this is why California um, tends to have so many serial killers who remain free and killing for years, like um, Joseph, James D'Angelo, Richard Ramirez, you know, 
40-year run of killing people before they're caught because everything is, let's let's try to pin this on a black person. Um, and uh, lastly, uh, for wallism, uh, it's been updated and upgraded uh, since Mr. Fuller wrote the book. Of course, um, him not seeing the technology advancements um, just since 2004 with the inception of the smartphone um, happens today more than in the 70s uh, when the four walls were physical places and tangible organizations. Today, they're virtual. Um, and just for an example, um, you could take um, uh, the organization that calls themselves ADOS, who said in the New York Times that they're a group. Um, so therefore, the members are practicing for wallism. They just meet online and in chat rooms and communicate digitally through text and email, not physically. Um, and um, all these devices that we're using are allowed um, by the FCA to be accessed except when we accept the terms of agreement. Um, just look at the NFAC, another virtual uh, organization um, that would actually get people to meet at places. Uh, I, would, I wouldn't even subscribe to their YouTube pages because I was afraid that, that, you know, that would put me, just trying to see what they were doing would put me in communication with them and that would allow them to potentially investigate me. It's just so easy these days uh, with the technology to put yourself in that four-wallism and not even know it um, or, or not even ever meet the people that's in the group with you. You know, it's just people that's online, over the phone. Some of these things are bots. They're not even real people that you're communicating with and they're just extrapolating information from you. Uh, and I'll meet my mind. Thank you. Much obliged. Thomas in New York, uh, do we have any other folks who had commentary they wanted to get in before we are uh, at the end of the broadcast? Any other folks? Get my notes in and then I'll make one more check. Let me see. Let's see if I can get my get my highlights here. Alrighty. Okay. I don't know why my pages, my highlights are showing a little odd. It's just been a very unpleasant day, like from beginning to end. Like you can't even get the highlights to show easily today. Alrighty, let's see. Uh, 90, is that the first one? 190, it says from the first testimony it was clear the state's case would be built on inside information in racial in the racial crucibles of Watts and South Central LA, it had never been difficult for police to develop informers. In exchange for information, deals were made with prosecutors, charges reduced or dropped, records expunged, favors granted, members of street gangs were quick to drop the dime about a rival group's activities. Certain disenfranchised blacks would snitch off their best friends for a $20 bill or a pat on the back 
if that right there is true and evidence suggests that it is man that would be another reason don't ever call me brother or sister uh, even starting from what well, seems like all these high profile uh, trials are happening right behind some sort of riot about a police killing did you all notice that like they just said this about uh, Watts so that would be the case for all the court cases in like the 60s and 70s like Angela Davis this one all the Panther trials like everybody is going to trial right after a police riot uh, and then so that was uh, OJ Simpson too and now that's about to be Derek Chauvin I think that was quite a few folks before uh, as well were they right as we're getting ready to go to trial for all this oh we've got all this racial tension and rioting in the that's system of white supremacy every day shouldn't shock, shock anyone at this point uh, but they continue never been difficult for police to develop informers white people to develop informers if that's the case the system of white supremacy will then again not going to be any secrets we should just you know accept that and codify accordingly uh, Mr. Fuller does have in the 10 stops along with no name calling he does have stop snitching I think this is the correct context of that policy stop snitching stop looking just to get $20 or a pat on the back yes I'm going to go think out you know my neighbor because I don't like him this is a black he took my parking spot the other day or you know said something to my girlfriend I don't like so I'm going to go snitch on him to white people <laughs> like I think that is what he's talking about like that is not correct behavior cut that out uh, we're not going to just be going and ratting out other black people unless they've done like some criminal activity they've been killing folks and that sort of thing where you should tell on them but if it's just you know I'm going to see if I can go rat on them get them in trouble with some black people like that is come on um, let's see black self respect by the way doing all this for a pat on the back black self respect um, Johnny Cochran said one of his co-counsels was an FBI informant. Now that is a new one. I've heard lots of this is some sort of jailhouse snitch and a rat or what have you. I have never heard one of the defense attorneys was an info. Although, didn't we just hear with OJ Simpson that Robert Shapiro had a recorder in his pocket and that sort? Of, I mean, this is not quite the first time that there's been some some malfeasance uh, with the with the defense counsel for Johnny Cochran. Anyway, um, so, OJ. So OJ Simpson. That was the longest jury sequestration in U.S. history. I believe that is still the case. This trial, the longest conspiracy trial in California history. I'm not sure if that's still true or not, but this book was published in, I think, like the late 90s, maybe even 2000. I'll double check. So it might still be the case as well. Historic trials for these Negros. Uh, let's see. This is two cases also. They said uh, this case was going to depend on a lot of uh, 
so-called evidence from these informants. So that's two cases that are basically not built on any sort of physical evidence. You don't have an eyewitness. You don't have a murder weapon. All you've got is circumstantial evidence and chatter from questionable witnesses. Hmm. Let's see. Was horrible hearing what happened uh, to sign. Now, again, you see the no snitch policy that white people have. They are serious. That is how gangsters, the gangsters in the known universe, are classified as white. Sandra, uh, who was uh, Geronimo Pratt's wife, uh, where they find her and torture her, apparently, for revealing information that they shouldn't have. So they serious about their no snitch policy. That's why I say, hey, that should be said all the time like what look at prince harry we talked about that just yesterday and then that right here no snitch white people are the masters of the no snitch policy and primarily not snitching about mistreating and abusing black people not talking about the business of white supremacy racism uh but ghastly and shooting a pregnant or a pregnant female I'll say shooting a pregnant female total disregard uh, for children I say that all the time total disregard uh, for life and I mean you see it in both ways right you see it failure to properly investigate and prosecute this crime slaughter of a white woman Miss Olson and then with Sandra same thing <laughs> whatever dead nigga in fact and gloat about it come in and laugh in your face about it <laughs> see what happened to her uh, have a good day throw him back in the hole another six months in solitude I mean what type of folks are they and again that's what we should be thinking about right and we, uh, when Emmy she asked for information about man how did he get all into drugs And can you imagine they keep saying that over and over threw him in solitary threw him in what was it bare ass and concrete Threw him in. They didn't just say we, we threw him in solitary for five years, and that type of thing. Now, if you can imagine, uh, and then being beaten and all the rest. I'm and I'm sure while all this is happening, right? They're not bringing them like uh, Evian water, you know, uh, organic almond butter, organic kale. You know, I don't think that's how I could be wrong. He was California. So, you know, they're what they call progressive on the food front. But I seriously doubt that's what George Jackson was eating. Oh, I forgot one. How could I forget that? He referred to George Jackson as a career criminal. That bothered me greatly. I don't know how many people are familiar with George Jackson uh, author of Soledad Brother, uh, Blood in My Eye, uh, member of the Black Panther Party. Uh, he was arrested, unless my memory is in error, for an armed robbery for $70. He got, and I remember it because the term is indeterminate sentencing. So his sentence was from one year to life indeterminate 
sentencing. So they can kind of put you in and it can just kind of change. Like maybe you'll be here a year, maybe it'll be five years, maybe the rest of your life. Who knows? Like, uh, but indeterminate sentencing for this one. It wasn't like he had been out robbing banks and raping children uh, the whole time he was on the planet. That was his sentence. Now he had some juvenile offenses, but I mean, I don't know. Does that qualify? Like if you commit crimes as a youth and then you get arrested for this one $70 crime, does that count as a career criminal? Like, I don't know that, 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 You're bothered, accurate, sir. that bothered me greatly. Like I felt like you could put that right up there with all that talk that we had before about Geronimo Pratt being Eurasian and Byzantine. Emmy talked about that where she said, Hey, he just looks like a black guy. What is all this, you know, trying to distance him from being black? You can put that right up there next to that. Like George Jackson, a career crit. Like I have never heard of him. That's the type of thing I would expect if Rush Limbaugh was talking about George Jackson or something like career criminal and thug. That's what I would expect. Like, really? Career criminal? Hmm. Anywho, uh, any other folks that have commentary? Yes, I I, I uh, didn't mention that in the second reading, uh, it was another uh, uh, parental uh, reinforcement, uh, this time with uh, Mr. Cochran. Uh, I believe it was both of his parents uh, that uh, basically acknowledged him and uh, that, that is that is always a very gratifying thing when your parents, uh, parent or parents, do something like that uh, 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 to uh, to you. Uh, I've experienced it a few times when uh, there were some troubling things that was taking place with me uh, on that job. Uh, also, uh, uh, Charles Manson. Uh, from my studies uh, with uh, the trial that uh, he had, uh, they were stating that they were stating that he purposely some of the things that he was doing or leading others to do. Uh, it was to it was to pin it on uh, black people. Uh, so at a start, what he identified as a quote unquote race riot. Uh, race war. No, I'm sorry, not race riot, but race war. So all of that comes into connection with with uh, what was happening with Geronimo Pratt also at the same time on the other end. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Yes, lots of things. There's so much happens like every day was a, a major event that's why just it was it was such an amazing period of time when i think last week was the last i think it was last week when geronimo pratt and his sister they were traveling and they ended up in chicago talk about riot on the day of the democratic convention and the big riot and all of that major i think bobby seal got arrested some other folks uh panther members but uh that's why because you were having major events happening all the time so even you know i don't think they planned like yeah let's go to chicago for the convention like they're driving trying to get to california and all their wacky trips and just like wow like we end up riding right into the middle of this like man that was the type of uh 
system of racism, white supremacy. Anyway, uh, folks, satisfied? Anything else they want to share this week's segment? Uh, I just looked it up because I had to see, you know, I had sort of had a pretty good idea of how he looked. And I looked again, like, yeah, he's definitely black. Um, looked like a black American. Um, then I saw there's a movie called Signal Hill. I, I never saw it, um, but it's about him. It has Jamie Foxx playing him and um, uh, Anthony Mackie playing Johnny Cochran. I just want to know if you saw it. and um, I, you, I know you probably didn't, but if anyone had seen it and if it's worth um, spending time watching, I'm doing my mind thinking. I haven't seen it. I saw like the movie poster where I, I guess I saw the, the imaging confirmation of what you just said, that Jamie Foxx apparently played him in this movie. But no, I have not seen it. I'm not aware of when it came out. Uh, I'm not surprised. I, I don't know if white people, you know, play that up a lot. Like uh, I saw Ray, right? Like I've seen Jamie Foxx in a lot of uh, wacky movies over the I just talked about Ali I saw him in that one he's been you know in a lot of projects over the year like my goodness like why not Ray Charles as Geronimo Pratt and then Anthony Mackie is the legend Johnny L. Cochran Jr. like hey we should Vietnam veteran we should all be excited like yeah let's go out and no no have to check it out to see what type of and particularly with this story because there's so much to share like hopefully uh, they did a good job did something that would motivate people to read this sort of book or to get more information about Cointel Pro find out all of the dastardly elements of racism white supremacy and not just the sanitized version of the so called civil rights movement they give us uh, anything else I guess folks my, can... my thoughts Gus my thoughts was um, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but my thoughts was big name actor like James Fox, who gets, generally gets a huge promotion behind his projects. And Anthony Mackie, who's become a big name actor, uh, why are white people not, why didn't they promote this movie? Is it constructive? That's what I'm thinking. Is it a reason why um, they didn't, they decided, oh, we're not going to put any backing behind this? Because I certainly, 2017, says came oh, out wow. and I don't remember it. Wow, that's I thought this was maybe like uh an older project, like maybe they did way back when, you know, like two thousand five or you know, back when Jamie Foxx wasn't before he'd won an Academy Award type thing. Like, wow, that is that is disgraceful. <laughs> like that recently like for them to sit up and do it that's like after George Floyd all the police brutality and everything and they uh, got all of these films coming out 13 had come out and all these other projects and for that not to get a lot of attention like Black Lives Matter Geronimo Pratt victim of racism like yeah get out and let's what like that is disgraceful like for for uh, Judas and the Black Messiah for that abomination to get all of that attention and them not to have a word about Jamie Foxx in playing Geronimo Pratt and Anthony Macchia like that's total uh, total disgrace total disgrace well it must be or I suspect then it might be constructive we should all watch it could be wrong but we should all uh, check it out yeah. yes sir uh, yeah uh, I, I, I recall somebody uh, mentioned uh, 
I think it was last week about uh, a book on, uh, on that they haven't heard of a book on uh, uh, black soldiers in Vietnam. Uh, and if, if my memory serves me correct, if that's so, uh, I have a suggestion of anybody can can pick up this book. It's called Bloods, and I, I bought it years ago and read it. It's it's a very good book on on uh, black males who were like Geronimo Pratt were involved in the Vietnam War. The name of it is Bloods, which was a slang term that they used with each other over there to identify themselves as black males. Much obliged, retired firefighter. We did have a listener who was looking for that sort of uh, Vietnam literature. Uh, So now you have two, this book and Bloods. With that, we will wrap up for this week. Again, it would have been so easy. Like, when they say, promise no easy victories. Uh, Sometimes it is just the labor of getting up you do the work of counter-racism and whatever it is today was doing the work to see if we could get the program uh, to take place but wow it were there were about hmm I would say there were at least uh, 50 different points where it would have been super easy to be like you know what we will catch up next week and try this again like super super easy Man, the labor of counter-racism. We will try it again tomorrow. Neutralizing workplace racism. Compensatory call-in on Saturday. Might be back-to-back weeks with quite a bit to talk about. It's been crazy. And the the time change, like, man, major. Lots of stuff happening. And then uh, we'll see if we can do our global Sunday talk, uh, which would be interesting this uh, coming weekend with everything, all the attention on the real tragedy and all that like to kind of get the perspective of some of the folks in London so we'll see if we can make sure that happens as well much obliged for everyone tuning in hope it was worthy of your Thursday evening with that sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy that was the BPP policy they should have stuck to it Uh, why have a policy if you don't follow it did not help anybody having Huey P. Newton or others using heroin cocaine sobriety would be best in addition to being sober I would say hunker down as I said uh, I could have died easily uh, just trying to go out and take the trash out not doing anything wacky or reckless or even leaving the residence just emptying the trash could have been dead it has been a super violent volatile year be very alert when you leave your residence if anyone is being loud hostile this is not the time for verbal confrontations exit Uh, you should be thinking this person could be armed in fact this person might be with a whole cadre of armed individuals Charlie Manson's I didn't leave my house ready for counter violence I am gonna get out of here while I have the chance be very alert this year if you are going out and about uh, if you are driving you're sober you are buckled driver or passenger if you're driving you're not on the cell phone we need all of our attention 
and we are trying to minimize contact with the Derek Chauvin's, Mark Furman's of the known universe. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. No, if nothing else from this week's segment, no name calling. Very simple. 10 stops. Black Panthers could have added that to the 10 point program. Not going to name call other black people. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.